Kurt, are you ready? Yes. Let's begin this meeting. City Commission meeting for Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. First, we'll have some explanation of how the meeting. Can you video on? Oh. Are you on? Yeah. Sorry. I am now. There you go. Okay. Uh, let's have first some explanation Thanks, from Porter on how these meetings operate. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. I just have a few housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting tonight. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. Now I'll return the meeting back to Mayor Shipley. Thank you. Next, we'll have some explanation of how public comment operates from Sherry. Thank you, Mayor. When the mayor calls for public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Individuals will be called on in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Please state your name before speaking and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you very much. Um, that brings us to the approval of the agenda. However, I do want to make sure um, it is, could you, could you not block the entrance and the exit? That would be great. Could you move yourself from the exit? You can either sit or you could move over, uh, but you cannot block the exit and entrance. Ma'am, I apologize for blocking the exit. You're still blocking the exit. Oh, my goodness. I so apologize Thank you. Yeah, Let's approve the agenda. Are there any changes anyone would like to see made? I move for approval of the agenda. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, Commissioner. I'm sorry, Vice Mayor Larson. Good to see you there. Uh, that passes five to zero. That brings us to proclamations. Uh, let's proclaim October 2022 as Community Planning Month. Do we have someone here to speak on that? Good evening, Commission Jeff Crick with Planning and Development Services, and thank you for the proclamation. I have some staff, uh, as you're probably very familiar with, Luke Mortensen and Sandy Day, who are here with us to hear about Planning Month, and just thank you for inviting and participating. That's all you got? All I got, sorry. All right. It's all in the proclamation. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're all here. Sandy, yeah, thank you. <sighs> Whereas, change is constant and affects all cities, towns, suburbs, counties, boroughs, townships, rural areas, and other places. And whereas, 
Community planning and plans can help manage this change in a way that provides better choices for how people work and live. And whereas community planning provides an opportunity for all residents to be meaningfully involved in making choices that determine the future of their community, and whereas the full benefits of planning requires public officials and citizens who understand, support, and demand excellence in planning and plan implementation, and whereas the month of October is designated as National Community Planning Month throughout the United States of America and its territories, and whereas American Planning Association endorses National Community Planning Month as an opportunity to highlight how planning is essential to recovery and how planners can lead communities to equitable, resilient, and long-lasting recovery. And whereas, the celebration of National Community Planning Month gives us the opportunity to publicly recognize the participation and dedication of the members of the planning commissions and other citizen planners who have contributed their time and expertise to the improvement of the city of Lawrence and Douglas County. And whereas, we recognize the many valuable contributions made by professional community and regional planners of the city of Lawrence and extend our heartfelt thanks for the continued commitment to public service by these professionals. Now therefore I, Courtney Shipley, mayor of the city of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim October 2022 as Community Planning Month. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Next is to proclaim October 2022 as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I believe Mr. Averill might be online. Gotta unmute, mate. I'm here, yeah. So you think I know by now. We've had enough Zoom meetings uh, that I'd, I'd have it on. Um, thank you so much, Mayor Shibley, and, and thanks very much to the commission. Should I talk now? Um, is, is now the time? Please carry on. Okay, awesome, awesome. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit wordier than, <laughs> than the other group, but um, yeah, I, I wanted to say thanks to everyone. Um, this is my sixth year in uh, coming before the commission and uh, proclaiming Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, and I uh, it will actually also be my last year um, as I'm moving on to a different role within the community. Um, but I wanted to let you all know that one in three women, one in four uh, men, and 30 to 50% of trans and non-binary folks will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Uh, domestic violence has been traditionally treated as a, a private issue, but it is very much, in my opinion, um, a public health issue and one which we should continue to uh, take very seriously as a public health issue and work on innovative solutions. Uh, this month, in order to raise awareness for domestic violence, we're producing another, uh, sorry, a number of events, um, including uh, coming up here uh, in a couple of days, um, a, a presentation at the Lawrence Public Library called In Their Shoes. Um, which is a simulation game exercise um, about youth and healthy relationships, um, along with some, um, some terminology and uh, how to recognize and assist those who may be in unhealthy or abusive relationships. 
On October 19th, we'll be having a conversation at the Cider Gallery about uh, the language of domestic violence, um, phrases like gaslighting, love bombs, trauma bonding, uh, to kind of raise awareness of the way in which we speak about domestic violence and the fact that uh, it's not just physical or sexual in nature, that it can also be psychological and emotional. And sometimes those scars can be much, much deeper. Uh, on October 26th, we're going to have uh, kind of a fun event. Um, we're doing Nostalgia Nightmares. We're going to watch the movie 16 Candles with a couple of uh, advocates from the Willow and point out that although we love this movie back in the 80s, it's got some seriously problematic behavior. So we'll be looking at uh, nostalgic movies through a more modern lens. And I think that will be um, a fun and uh, provocative way to address the issues and the, again, the terminology behind domestic violence. And then on October 27th, We'll be having a Zoom uh, presentation on domestic violence and public health. Working with the KU Self program, um, the engineering through the engineering school, we determined that one dollar in shelter services is the equivalent to nine dollars in uh, emergency services, and we'll go through kind of the the logic behind that, how we came to that figure, and what we can do to move people towards more prevention and education to lift the burden off of emergency services. Uh, again, I just, I just like to say thanks to uh, everyone. I think we've created in the past six years that I've been uh, working with the Willow, some amazingly innovative public solutions to this, this crisis. Um, our transitional housing program through the Willow, um, which was done in conjunction, conjunction with tenants to homeowners and the KU endowment um, provides one to two year leases at affordable rates for survivors who are saving up for more permanent housing. It is an extraordinarily innovative program. Um, as far as I can tell, it is one of, if not the only transitional housing in the pro, uh, program in the country that's specifically domestic violence related. So I'm really excited to see that. I'm really excited to see our foster support program continue to develop so that youth coming out of foster care who may not have access to support and information can get the help that they so desperately need and avoid um, ending up uh, houseless or um, ending up um, in a trafficking situation. So these are the kind of innovation solutions we're, we're, we're working towards now. I hope we can continue to, to do that as a community in the future. And I wanna thank you for being part of those solutions and encourage you to continue um, to think about how we as a community can confront and beat domestic violence. So thank you, Mayor Shibley, and thank you, Commission. Thank you, Mr. Averill. I appreciate you. Um, on to the proclamation. Whereas more than 20,000 calls are placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide every day, and whereas one domestic violence incident occurs every 23 minutes, and one domestic violence murder occurs every 11 days in the state of Kansas. And whereas in Douglas County in 2020, there were 773 reported incidents of domestic violence, 287 of which resulted in arrests. And whereas the impact of domestic violence is felt not only by individuals and families, but communities and a nation as a whole. And whereas Lawrence joins with others across the state of Kansas and nationwide in supporting domestic violence victims and survivors, the advocates and organizations who serve them, and holding offenders accountable in our community. 
Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, mayor of the city of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim October 2022 as Domestic Violence Awareness Month and in recognition of the critical work being done by domestic violence advocates and allies in service of the survivors and victims they serve. I encourage all citizens to actively engage in the scheduled activities and events sponsored by Willow Domestic Violence Center and other organizations working toward an eradication of domestic violence. Thank you again for your work. Thank you all very much. Next, we have a recognition of St. John's Fiesta. You know. But the domestic survivors movement. And I, I was. Oh, someone may not be muted on their Zoom. Thank you, please. Thank you. I'm Frank Lemos on the committee of St. John's Mexican Fiesta. And I want to thank you, Mayor Shipley, and the rest of the city commission for the honor of this proclamation for the St. John's Fiesta. Uh, we call it a, a party in our backyard of St. John's uh, to invite the city of Lawrence and surrounding areas to come celebrate the Mexican-American culture that we've established here in Lawrence. Uh, celebrate through music, through food, through laughter, through dance. Uh, we, we do it with the help of a lot of volunteers. So we thank all the volunteers. Uh, we thank St. John's the staff and the priests that have helped us throughout the years. Thank the city of Lawrence for always being on our side and helping us through it. Uh, most important for me, I want to thank the, the Fiesta Committee. A lot of them are for the original members for 40 plus years. Uh, it took a pandemic to stop them just for one year. Uh, I've seen them battle through storms, through weather, uh, through uh, power outage. Uh, one year we had a renovation project and there was no blacktop to host it till the, till the Wednesday before and still they rallied to host the fiesta. I'm very proud of this committee. They work hard tirelessly and they, and they don't care about who gets the credit as long as the fiesta is hosted. So I want to give them a thanks and an applause to them and thank you all for this honor. Let me go ahead and read the proclamation, the recognition. Whereas the St. John's Mexican Fiesta has been an annual fundraiser in Lawrence, Kansas for 42 years. And whereas the Fiesta highlights Mexican-American culture by sharing food, music, and dance with thousands of people every year. And whereas the St. John's Fiesta has awarded over $43,000 in scholarships to students pursuing higher education at a college, technical, or trade school. And whereas proceeds from the Fiesta also fund a Spanish language program for school children. And whereas the St. John's Mexican Fiesta is a beloved, fun, and unmistakably vibrant tradition in our community that will continue for many years to come. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, during this last week of National Hispanic Heritage Month 2022, do hereby recognize St. John's Fiesta for the dedication of hundreds of volunteers over 42 years who have made the St. John's Mexican Fiesta possible. Thank you all Thank you. so much for being here. Thank you. I see you, Nick. <laughs> Let's move on now to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for decisions on the agenda. 
Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on the items presented during the time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Is there anyone in the room who would like to make general public comment? Mr. Flowers? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Um, I noticed we've, we're doing this change where now everything needs to be germane to the the business of the governing body. And I just want to, I'm, I'm here to announce how there are some loopholes to make just about anything germane to the business of the governing body. Number one, ask for the city to make a proclamation about the subject you're talking about. Telling the commission that 9-11 was an inside job is not germane to city business, but asking them to proclaim 9-11 an inside job is because making proclamations is city business. If proclamations aren't relative to city business, then why are they constantly part of the agenda like earlier in this meeting? Also, it's not like the proclamations we make are always relevant to city business. In May 2017, the city proclaimed a Star Wars Day where they made a proclamation about how much joy the movie has brought to generations of people. So if proclaiming a day after a, a movie that has nothing to do with Lawrence's city business, then why shouldn't a proclamation about 9-11 or COVID not be considered city business? Um, number two, some like how to make something germane to city business. Ask the city for a letter supporting your cause. In 2016, a group of protesters came to City Hall demanding a letter of support against the Dakota pipeline. The pipeline didn't go through Lawrence or even Kansas, yet the city deemed it rele relevant to its business enough to issue a letter of support for those against the pipeline. So if the city can issue a letter of support against the pipeline happening in a different state, why couldn't it hypothetically issue a letter of support for those against any kind of COVID mandates? The COVID deniers could ask the city to send the letter to the CDC, and ta-da, it's now germane to the business of the governing body. So I, I'm just throwing that out there because uh, I think you're trying to shut some people up, but if you're not, then wouldn't a like this solution where um, we're making what they're saying, like teaching them how to make it germane to the business, to like city business, isn't that like a goal we should be doing if we're not trying to shut them up? Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Any other public comment? Any other public comment? My name is Dr. Justin Spees. I'm running for Douglas County Commissioner in District 1 as a Republican candidate. I want to go over some numbers with you guys here. Uh, this, these are the numbers on the last day that uh, Trump was in office and how things are today. So on the last day that Trump was in office, inflation rate was at 1.4%. Today it's at 8.3%. That's a little low. Gas was on uh, national average at $2.39 when Trump was in office. Today it's uh, $3.76. The 30-year mortgage rates were at 
2.65%. Today they're at 7.08%. Dr. Spees, is there some way that we have control? Is there some way that this city commission has control over inflation? average rent prices were $1,625. Today they are at $2,039. The NASDAQ was up 13,300. Mr. Spees, is there some way this city commission has control over the NASDAQ? Please, Nazi. Thank you. Is there any? I I make Are it you clear ready to, you, to be removed? I'm it clear to you that I would like. Can you stop my time? No. Why not? Because so I far you haven't question. said anything that like has to anything to do with this body. That the city considered how asinine the Democrats are. So thank you. This is and a so non. The Nasdaq is down 10,829 points. Again, we have no control over the Nasdaq, Mr. Spees. Today it's at 13.5%. The electricity rose 1.5%. Today it's at 15.8%. The real uh, average hourly earnings increased 4%. Last day Trump was in office today. It's kind of you to come today, sir. But if you don't well, have anything now that I'm in the last two minutes. To the business of the city, the reason why I bring this up is because I stand on the corner and I campaign, uh, and one of my signs says that Democrat Patrick Kelly raised your property. This is a nonpartisan body. And that I never Whether will. anyone is Democrat or Republican is not can you stop relevant. Nazi? No, I'm sir. To, I'm trying to make Our my general time public comment. Is the city's and, time. Yeah. You must like speak on items germane like to, to this body. I just did, Courtney. No. You, just hear you have I'd not. I'd like to make this a proclamation. What What is going on here? Rent and gas has want. nothing to do with, with the city of Lawrence. It doesn't go through here. And when I'm bringing up, I welcome you to leave this taxes. room, sir. What's that? You've been warned. All right, let's do it then. Okay. Let's do it. Why are you shutting me down? I want to make this a proclamation. You've yet to speak about a single thing to do with the body. Let's go. So anyway, thank you for leaving, sir. People drive by and they shake their heads. Excuse me, sir. You're finished. And the the reason why I'm bringing all this up is because Patrick Kelly had $55 million that he could have dipped this into to decrease your property taxes and said he increased them. Until you leave, sir. For what? We have rules. I've what, made what, them what are the clear rules? to you. What are the rules, Nazi? There's what are the rules, Nazi? Nothing germane the, that you've said so far. I want it to be a proclamation. Thank you for and coming. It's germane to you You're guys. welcome to leave. Nope. It's germane to... He just laid out a that I can make this a proclamation. Why aren't you doing that? You're Why is that not important? Leader. Why is my idea not important? If I was in here because about a gas pipe, to do a gas pipeline that doesn't go through here, then it would be body. okay? Is that what you're saying? You're welcome to leave, sir. I don't want to leave. I want to finish speaking. You're clearly, you, you are the same yet, person that sat up there and said, you don't want white people up on boards. You're doing this because I'm a white guy. You're doing this because I'm a white guy. Goodbye, sir. Clearly, you're doing this because I'm Goodbye, white. Goodbye, sir. You are a racist. You are Goodbye, a Nazi. Sir. You are exactly what you say we are. You are exactly what you say we are. You Thank are a you Nazi. Each one of you are Nazis. And you, you, you are the miss. I'm oppression, miss suppression. You're going to allow this to happen? She is suppressing me coming up here. We have recessed this body, sir. Fuck you. You're a Nazi. Order. Ready, Mayor. Kurt? Yes. We will now return to general public comment. Are there any other people in the room who would like to make public comment? Hi, my name is Sue Herrick. I have something here that's very germane to city business. 
and probably very germane to all of us because what happened to me today could very well happen to all of you. And I think it should weigh on your minds as city commissioners that if, like I said, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. This involves the Lawrence Journal world. Chad Lawhorn, the editor of that paper, is frightened of me. Today I went to his office at the LJ World in person to see him. Put yourself in my place and ask what you would have concluded if upon entering the building, a man in the doorway told you that Mr. Lawhorn was in a meeting and not available till two o'clock. And when I said I would return to see him then, this man very snarkily said to me, good luck with that. I politely asked why that was said and he became even more nasty. Ms. Herring. Aggressive and condescending. This body has no control over either of the papers in this city. If you want to continue interrupting, you will also be removed. I told him I was a paying subscriber and couldn't understand the behavior. We have no control over the paper. The police were being called. The upshot of it all is that the police talked to everyone and told me that a trespass was being placed on me so that if I returned to the offices of the LJ World, I could be arrested, fined, or both. Anyone who wants more details can watch the video of this taken by two friends who are with me. The editor of the local newspaper, Chad Lawhorn, is so opinionated, so afraid of another viewpoint, and it might be yours, <laughs> that he will have the police called rather than talk to a subscriber. That behavior translates that attitude translates to his publications. The LJ world is controlled by someone. Again, we have no control over either of the publications in this publication town. publication can't be trusted. Could you speak more about the police interaction you All had? Of you, as commissioner, should be aware of him and his bias. Think twice before you consider what's published in the LJ world as reliable information. Thank you. Is there any other public comment? And before I start, there are police involved, so please don't interrupt me. There's something sinister going on in Lawrence, Kansas. Example, a shocking and unexplainable incident occurred today at LJ World. Unfortunately, the occurrence is not unique, as we've endured many instances of being treated with bias, aggression, and violence. Today, two of us joined Dr. Spies to go to LJ World so he could talk with Chad Lawhorn, editor, and ask questions about an upcoming LJ World publication which will highlight the three Douglas County Commissioner candidates. We go with Dr. Spies to everyday events like this because without fail, someone calls the police, so we have to video everything. This year, LJ World decided not to um, print the word-for-word -word responses in the Q&A section, breaking precedent from previous years where they published candidates' verbatim answers. It's clear they are doing this because they know Dr. Spies will have a clear, concise, and commanding, will have clear, concise, and commanding ideas for the future of Douglas County. The other two candidates will not. To sway the election, LJ World will create a story. Did you have any comments fit. about your police interaction? To local readers. 
This is the same thing the county and city commissioners are doing by limiting public comments that have become uncomfortable for them. Today, LJ World, a staff member, greeted us at the door with an ugly attitude and clear dislike for Dr. Spies and us. We have never met this person before. He became increasingly agitated while talking to us. I made a comment that he looked angry because his lip was quivering. He then came at me with a shaking fist, and I felt threatened. Dr. Spies immediately called out this person and addressed the escalating aggression. An assault charge against him will go to the Lawrence DA. LJ World staff proceeded to call the police for reason unknown, so we awaited for their arrival. Um, LJ World ended up trespassing all three of us for no reason, and no other and one other officer was awaiting a call back from the strip mall owner, Cherry Hill, to ask if they wanted to trespass us from the entire strip mall. It's beyond me why the cop would go out of his way to ask the owner of that mall if they want to trespass us. The cop obviously didn't like us either because he was condescending and refused to answer basic questions. I told the officer that it seemed he was trying to make our lives more miserable and soon, we won't be able to do any business in Lawrence, as this isn't the first place to trespass as conservatives, just because they don't like us, I guess. It's not because we're breaking rules or laws. The officer's solution was that if we were trespassed and we needed to renew our driver's license, we could just drive to another county to use their DMV. In the city of Lawrence, Kansas, those who don't like our views are repeatedly protected when they um, discriminate against us while these while the negative consequence negative consequences always come our way before you know it this will make national news so you might Time. want to do what you can to get a handle thank you My name is Joe Herrick. I guess I have a question for the commissioners, and that would be, why do we call this public comment if we're constantly being censored? The reason that we don't have any control anymore is because we've completely abandoned our oaths of office in the Constitution of the United States. If you look at the First Amendment, it talks about free speech. The 14th Amendment, you treat all people equally. And we've completely thrown that into the trash. When you say public comment, that means that they can speak anything on any subject that they so desire. Now, most of the problems that we have in this country are because of our government leaders. As an example, let's look at the border. There's been two the city of Lawrence has no control over what happens at any border, not Canada, neither Mexico. Could you comment on anything Would that... shut the time off? No, sir. Well, I'll tell you what. You have illegals in this town. That's my business. You have homeless in this town that aren't from our county or our city. And the more you subsidize them, the bigger the problem gets. You talked about having funds available to help people pay for their utility bills. You raised something like 3,700 with volunteers, taxpayers. 
but at the same time, we can spend a hundred times that much on a ferry motel up by the police station. And by the way, the citizens voted against it. Is that correct? It's time we get back to the Constitution and treat people like human beings. The only thing I'd like to do is try to get people to think a little bit. That's just like they've known that these masks do not prevent a virus for a hundred years. And if you look at the science... The city has no control over Well, the mask city has any control over anything. Usage. Don't appear... Well, then we you can go to like the state of Kansas and you can talk to those legislators. You continue interrupting. What's the problem in here? We can't even have a decent conversation. Time. Thank you, Mr. Herring. Well, you took my time. Thank you, Mr. Herring. Any other public comment? Any other public comment? Do I have any more? No, sir. Yes, I do. Your time is up. I'm, I'm going to take some time that you took away Thank from Thank you me. for coming. Thank I you appreciate for, you being here. Thank you here. for not listening. Thank you for not giving people a public forum. Thank you for being a Are Nazi. you ready to be removed? Thank you, sir. Mr. Aravi? Why don't you just do Michael Lawrence accountability because you never say my name right. So uh, I'll get back to all this. Seven cops in this town in the last 10 years have been decertified and told they can no longer be police officers. I told you several weeks ago that they were trained to empty magazines. I told you that. I have the video to prove it. You have two former Lawrence police officers right now on trial for rape. Not just rape, guys. Rapes that occurred while on duty. You have another officer currently going through the review process with C-Post. His hearing was held on August 4th. I'm publishing that entire hearing because your local newspaper is in the bag and doesn't want to talk about everything that came out in that hearing. A lot of details. And then we have a, another one that wrecks his car, DUI, and goes on paid leave per protocol. Turns out there's not a protocol. You know, if, if Chad Lawhorn would ask some questions, some of these things would actually come out. He has enough readers to do it. But he doesn't want to ask the questions. So that leaves it down to people like me and other people like Mackenzie Clark at the Times to start asking some questions around here. So a week ago yesterday, Lawrence police killed a guy. And they didn't just kill him once. They killed him 17 fucking times. I've come in here and I've talked to you guys about him training to empty clips. They're training for fucking war. And you saw it happened. At least you guys might get to see it. Because I guarantee old Lockhart ain't going to come out with some good video from that one, is he, Craig? 
So we can get pretty tense about city business, but you continually work so hard to shut people down. And all you do is create further animosity. That's all you're doing by doing that. It's not saving you any time in the meeting. You still ran the time for the three minutes. And when the three minutes is done, they leave. What is your issue? I mean, I think 30 seconds I got, I, I would gladly give it to you. If you would tell us what your issue is with the citizens of this town coming in here saying things you don't like. Like control your fucking cops. Craig, since you're the actual chief. You need to speak here, to the commission. <clears throat> found a way to interrupt. Good one. Any other public comment in the room? Is there any public comment online? Sherilyn Wells. <clears throat> I'm concerned about the man that got shot, but not just what the police did. Evidently, his family had called about his welfare in some form or fashion six times before it came to the point that he got shot in front of his father's duplex. I don't know the family. I look at Facebook and he is not the first person in Lawrence, Kansas that has asked for help with mental health or substance abuse problems where there has been a bad outcome. There is now supposed to be crisis intervention. I feel like there should be some kind of investigation of what went on. People can take people away, even the police, if they are considered to be a danger to themselves or others. And I just don't understand how things got to that point when the family was clearly asking for help. I mean, people are putting up voluntarily millions of dollars for crisis intervention not to be negative or hateful, but some kind of investigation of what went on before it got to the point that the police shot this man. Thank you. Thank you. Where were the beanbag shotguns? All outbursts. That's your warning. No, you don't need to Okay, you're welcome to leave then. You're welcome to leave. Where were the beanbag shotguns? You're welcome to leave. Is there any further public comment online? That's all the comments, Mayor. Okay, great. That brings us to our consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled from the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Are there any items city commissioners would like to remove? Seeing none, uh, Vice Mayor, anything? 
Okay, then I would uh, make sure there's no one in the audience who would like to remove something from the consent agenda. Yeah, um, I'm trying to find it. It's the one about uh, public records. I think it's E5A um, where they're at like authorizing the city manager to, I guess, uh, charge a reasonable fee. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. One. Any further items? Is there anyone online who is interested in removing something from the consent agenda? No, Mayor. Thank you very much. Um, are there any motions? I move for approval of the consent agenda with the exception of E5A. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, Vice Mayor. That passes five to zero. Uh, Mr. Flowers, your comments on E5A? Yeah, I was just wondering what what exactly is reasonable? Like, uh, like to get a public record, what would be considered a reasonable uh, fee? And I'm just I'm asking because one of the ways governments, um, like I know there are cases where they like. To get a public record, they charge a lot of money, and it basic like the more we we're charging, the harder it's going to be for our journalists to request um, open records because they're going to be having to pay fees, and the more fees they pay, the less you know, the less money they'll have in the long run on these public records. So, and I and also. Uh, Gov gov there are, have been cases of government purposely charging fees that are hard to pay for. So I would just, I, th I think we should have some kind of reasonable expectation what a reasonable fee is. Just so we know that we're like, that our, our local government isn't purposely charging a high fee to try to keep the records from getting out in the open. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Is there any further public comment on this item? Um, bring it back to the commission, sorry. Any questions? Just Commissioner Sellers, I was going to thank Mr. Flowers for bringing that up. Um, the department I work in, we do have a core, rec core request consultant who does public records. Um, we do have state statute that gives us a guiding practice on what reasonable fees are. That's KSA 45219. Um, there is a Kansas website called the Reviser of Statutes, which is all state statutes. Um, so we can, the city can use that as guidance for reasonable fees. Um, reasonable fees, to my knowledge, and don't quote me on this, is not a defined term in state statute, but the statute does give us guidance on what is considered reasonable fees. And so if you look at KSA 45-219, Section 5, um, there's some guidance there on that. So. Um, and reasonable fees relate to copies, it relates to time um, that staff would um, need to use to pull files um, if they're not, um, if that's not part of their normal um, job description and, 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 and piece. So we have someone on file that does that. So that is, that, those are things or variables that you can look at as it relates to reasonable fees. And I'd only add that the Attorney General's division yeah. you know, oversees that and, and um, those can be appealed to the Attorney General. That as well. Any other comments? 
Let's make sure there's no further public comment. Seeing none, is there anyone online who would like to comment on this? No, Mayor. Thank you. Uh, bring it back to the commission. I move to adopt on second and final reading ordinance number 9942. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, Vice Mayor. That passes five to zero. That brings us to the work session to receive strategic plan update from the Connected City Outcome Team. Do you want to read the little? little? Oh, oh, hold on here. Apologize. The work session provides an opportunity for the City Commission to discuss items in greater detail. The Commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Good evening, Commissioners. I'm Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager with Municipal Services and Operations, and I'll be joined this evening by Nick Hoyt, another Engineering Program Manager um, with MSO, to present um, an update on the Connected City uh, commitment area of the city's strategic plan. Um, our Connected City is focused on a, a well-maintained, functional, and efficient infrastructure and facilities, um, re reflecting the city's commitment to our commitment to the well-being of all people. So um, on the Connected City outcome, there's 14 uh, performance indicators. Um, on this evening, we're gonna focus on two of those. Um, first, um, CC 4% of goals met for reliability of stormwater and CC 13 miles of trails. And to begin, we'll begin with CC 13 miles of trails. So in 2021 and 2022, the city completed uh, approximately two miles of new trails. Um, those two miles are, are broken down between five uh, uh, segments, the first being a half a mile um, in Hobbs Park as part of the Lawrence Loop Trail from 11th Street North to 9th Street. Another .2 miles on East 29th Street from the Haskell Rail Trail um, east to Haskell Avenue, again part of the Lawrence Loop. .6 miles of trail in the park um, on Heisenauer Drive behind the police facility and another 0.7 miles of the Lawrence Loop Trail from Peterson Park to Michigan, which should be open this month. Um, the fifth and final one that we don't have a photo of is uh, the trail um, on Castle Drive adjacent to hy on Clinton Parkway, uh, a small section there. Uh, we've also got um, three visuals to help um, understand the, the the numbers and segments we're talking about here. Um, so this first map is the trails existing in the city as of 2020. Uh, I believe it represents 68.4 miles of trails at that time. Looking forward to the, the projects we just discussed briefly, 2021 and 2022, those projects in yellow there comprising of two miles added on to our map. And then looking forward again um, to projects that we um, anticipate getting completed um, in 2023. We've actually got nine uh, projects identified with trail components. Um, you can see them in red on the map. Uh, they, those red line segments equate to uh, approximately seven additional miles of trails. So um, as you can see, we're anticipating um, a lot of progress towards that uh, performance indicator um, next year. Um, with that, I will pass the presentation on to Nick to discuss stormwater and will be available for questions when he's presenting. Thank you. Uh, Nick Hoyt, engineering program manager. Um, 
So uh, I was asked to kind of give this Connected City presentation on stormwater. Um, I felt like it's quite a ball to unwind, but I think this presentation kind of sets the stage for what we're going to talk about later, but it kind of is Nick's random thoughts about stormwater a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk about some of the differences in the system in the city, uh, the history of how the stormwater utility was established, some regulatory issues, and then talk about the CC4 performance indicators. Um, you know, even though his, Lawrence is rather small geographically or relatively small, there's some big differences in geography that affect the stormwater system. Um, the south end is influenced by the Wakarusa River, north end by the Kansas River, but there's also three distinct what I'm going to call system types. Um, north Lawrence is obviously very different with the levee and pump station system. The older part of town around downtown is the what I'm calling the fully enclosed system. That was mainly developed before World War II, and then the rest of town is the, generally the open channel system. So everyone's generally familiar with the levee when you cross the bridge here in town, and um, um, realizes that North Lawrence is in a floodplain. You'll notice that it's quite flat here. We got some uh, contours, and there's a lot of 810s and 820s. It does present some challenges. I know that sometimes there's blocks where the whole um, drop for a thousand feet is about a foot, and it does make some challenges. But um, North Lawrence is more has regional challenges as well. Um, there's uh, the levee system is not just the one levee you see when you cross the bridge. There's approximately 16 miles of levee that goes into both Leavenworth County on the um, east side, Jefferson County on the west side, and then there's a separate levee north of um, the airport along Mud Creek. And then also, um, we've, uh, the Maple Grove pump station that's at North Sec along North 2nd, it's not just pumping water out of North Lawrence, but there's about 2,000 acres north of town that drain into town and then are pumped out to the river by that pump station. So, like, the drainage challenges in North Lawrence, it's not just what's going on there. There's a regional issue there. Um, I have always loved these uh, pictures of old Lawrence. Here, this one is um, an aerial view from 1880 from North Lawrence looking towards Mount Oread. And ever since I was a kid, you always find something different. But today I'm going to draw our attention to Old West Lawrence. And what do we see here in Old West Lawrence? We see a drainage ditch going through Old West Lawrence that is not there today. Right Now that's the Jayhawk sewer. Um, so how did that get there? You know, you started with a natural channel. You put a tunnel inside it and fill, fill around there. And then we put some houses on top just to make sure that life's exciting. So what happens there? There's a lot less conveyance after than before. And then um, the area upstream of that, we build parking lots and houses. And, you know, we get our yards uh, graded right to the street. So everything runs off much quicker. So we have a much smaller area to convey the water and then much more water coming through. So for the last 100 plus years in the older part of town, the alleys and the streets kind of become part of the conveyance system. And we're going to get into that later of what is an acceptable level of conveyance in the, in the um, alleys and the streets, but it is a challenge. So um, here's an example of that in real life. This is a picture from 2005 in the Burroughs Creek Trail. 
and you'll see that little eight by eight box in the middle of the creek. That's what was the fully enclosed um, storm sewer, and then the project was kind of widening the creek out as it is today. So this water, this picture was taken during construction in 2005. All this water was trying to go through that little um, box in the middle of the creek. So obviously that wasn't happening very well, and this was a good situation where there's plenty of room to open it up. But there's similar situations where that creek is built, you know, they put those houses right in there. So this is um, the lower end of the, what uh, we recently modeled, the north, what we call Northwest Burroughs Creek. And basically this downstream pipe was as big as can fit in that hole. You know, it's not really sized for, um, it, well, it wasn't designed optimally based on what's upstream. It's how much can we fit through this little hole between these houses. So there's a challenge there in this fully enclosed system for what level of service we can provide, right? It's not, everything is not created equal because there's just challenges there um, compared to the open channel system. So the open channel system um, can be characterized by um, small enclosed systems draining the streets, a bridge or culvert of the roads going over the creek, and then a natural channel. And I'm going to put the natural channel in quotes because that's not the channel that was there, you know, 100 plus years ago in millennia. So um, when development happens, that natural channel that usually takes millennia to kind of move and meander. You know, we build a bunch of parking lots, we build roads, and we're, then we put utilities crossing that creek, and then there is rapid change in the decades following that development. So here on the left, you can, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a cable that's up in the air crossing um, the bottom of that creek, and then on the right, there's um, some other utilities, and that blob of concrete is actually a sanitary sewer. So all of that stuff 30 years ago was covered by dirt. Right, but then, so that channel, as development occurs, more water is rushing down quicker, it's eating down, it's eating out. And that is the main challenge for these natural channel systems. So here on the right, you can see that threatening somebody's fence. On the left, um, it's getting closer to some AT&T boxes and a sanitary sewer. There, there are small flooding problems in these natural channel issues, but they aren't kind of regional conveyance or regional flooding problems where the whole watershed's undersized. The, the erosion of the creeks is the problem of things that, hap that were built in the 60s. Um, generally, so far with the city, uh, since I've worked at the city, when we've um, gone to put in expensive armoring or protection of that creek has been when the sanitary sewer has been threatened, right? When the erosion gets back to the sanitary sewer where that fails and that's going in the creek, that's when we take action to stop that. Um, what you'll see in the next coming years is we're trying to make sure to get the setback requirements for new development right. So we make sure that we're starting out with everything set back from the creek where we don't have these type challenges, um, you know, 20, 30 years after development. Um, so those are the three system types. Um, but within those systems types, there's different owners. So the city owns some things, and then there's private. 
Um, generally, what the city owns is what drains to the public street, right? It hits the public pavement. It goes in the public storm inlet. If it drains off someone's front yard and once it gets to the street, then it's ours. And then once it enters the city storm sewer, it's ours all the way till it's out of the city. Um, we do a lot of kind of um, counseling, I would say, between private property owners when this one's water's going into the, their neighbor's house and there's kind of conflict there, but it's not, you know, we aren't going to build anything as a solution. That's a private problem. Um, same thing with the parking lots. Um, if it lands on a private parking lot or on private property and enters their private storm sewer or on a private street, it remains their private system until it enters ours. So, like in this case, behind Target here is where our public storm sewer is. Um, so everything is Target's problem on the parking lot until it gets back there. A um, couple other things to talk about that is detention. Um, a lot of people, sometimes people aren't aware that they're responsible to maintain their detention and they didn't plan for that. But right now the city only maintains detention facilities that are on our private, on our property, like the fire station has a detention basin behind it, right? So that's the city's responsibility to maintain, um, you know, the different HOAs or this is some combination of different um, commercial businesses, they're all responsible for um, maintaining their private detention basin. Um, changing that is a, has huge implications. The streams are a little interesting. Um, there's not much maintenance work really the only thing the city does is if a large tree falls down and it's like blocking a culvert or something and causing a flooding issue that will cut that tree out but generally the maintenance of the stream is um, you know you let gravity do the work um, okay so then a quick quick history of the stormwater utility um, the 1993 flood was a major um, major event here and that kind of spurred the 1996 storm master plan also around that same time um, they were switching to phase two of the national pollutant discharge elimination system so that we knew that was coming in advance in the later 90s and we knew that that was going to apply to the city of lawrence where it hadn't before since we were under 100,000. Um, after that utility was established Several large um, capital projects were completed, and then um, in 2003, we had our first MS4 permit, Municipal Separate Storm Sewer System. Um, 1993 flood wasn't just along the river. This picture in the middle is at 23rd Nosdale. It affected quite a few places in Lawrence. Uh, the master plan, it, it did several things. It um, listed uh, about 40 some projects that were you know deemed of different levels of priority to complete it um, set up guidelines for what the rate structure should be and then also what different staffing levels were recommended for the city so at that time this was the staffing that was um, um, established after with the stormwater utility um, the field crew has done lots of medium-sized projects and smaller repair-sized projects. Um, it is a struggle to keep up with even the emergency projects today. Um, and I, I guess I should say that this staffing is 
this is from the late 90s. So this staffing categories and titles has all changed several times since then. Um, we completed basically the five largest projects from the 96 master plan. Um, and after these were completed, it kind of maxed out our bonding authority. You know, we kind of maxed out the credit card on these and then we had to pay that back over several years. So there wasn't as many projects completed there after that. Um, since then, the two larger projects were the Maple Street pump station in 2015, which was paid from, I believe, infrastructure sales tax, and then the 23rd Nosdale, which was mainly funded from uh, turnback money from KDOT for 23rd Street. So that is kind of determined that we weren't, with the resources, weren't meeting the goals of the previous plan. And um, we've been, got more resources. So that, we're gonna get into how we're gonna use those resources later. But that's kind of the history of that, of why these large projects stopped. And there's a big gap there. Um, the, the regulatory issues, um, are mainly about, or they're completely about public outreach, public participation, and water quality. Regulatory issues aren't so much about flooding. So that's just something to keep in mind um, with our actual performance indicators. Um, the first two are inspections, and that's from our permit that we have to inspect so much of our system each year. Um, that will be very easy to do over the next couple years as we're doing the storm asset ID program. Um, then the other, uh, then we have um, percent of streets swept annually, which we're trying to average um, four trips around the city. I th think it's much heavier. We do more than that in parts of town with much more leaves and stuff, and uh, you know less than that in other parts of town. And then. Um, how quickly we're resolving the um, violation issues, which we just barely missed that goal, but I think we're gonna get it in the future. Um, moving forward, we're gonna talk about stormwater design criteria and um, nature-based or green infrastructure here in a little bit. Other things that'll be on your, um, before you in the next year or so is um, updating land disturbance permits and then that stream buffer ordinance I was talking about earlier, again, set back from that stream. And I think both of those are going to be tied into the development code um, updates that planning, um, planning will be working on, or planning will be leading, I guess I should say. Um, so hopefully that wasn't too boring. Uh, if you have any questions for me or Jake, I'm sure we will be happy to take those. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was great. Any, any questions? Nick, I have a question for you. I, I know there, um, you know, some of those, what you call them, the open conveyance systems, the, you know, that they're owned either by individuals or parts of them owned by individuals or they're owned by maybe an HOA. Right. And the some concerns about, you know, who is maintaining that and if they, you know, fill up with trees or whatever. Is there a plan to, to one, analyze them, and two, ever for us to somehow figure out if, how we maintain those? Um, I would say the plan is there is, is not, at least at my level, been any discussion about us taking maintenance over okay. on those. Do I would we tell people how to maintain them? Do we tell a homeowner there's a big tree growing back behind your house, cut it down, it's in our 
stream bed or something? Well, I think um, I think you're you're mainly talking about the detention basins, like in eight, or do you think about the. No, I'm the talking stream? about like. Um, I, I know there's one that the HOA is particularly concerned about that you know is near 31st and um, Castled. Right. You know that runs you know to, right to the Castle Cove and the right, HOA that, that has a very large stretch. There's a couple of apartment complexes that have very large long stretches of open area right so um like we on the north end of that closer to clinton parkway a couple years ago we had a sanitary sewer failure as that creek eroded back and i want to say you know it was in the two to three hundred thousand dollars to repair and then just stabilize that section around the sanitary sewer um it is def making sure people are aware of their maintenance responsibilities is um should be a priority and i think just more on the education level um i guess i would say um i don't think there's been any talk at my level about taking over maintenance of those or changing that and if there were there i'm not saying it was i'm just major, asking the question <laughs> um because i mean i think with the stream buffer ordinance we could do a better job of educating the public because also like in certain places, people want to mow right up to that creek bank, right? Where if you let the volunteer trees grow, then all that roots kind of hold it in better. And that kind of act as nature's stabilizing part of the stream bank. It's not as pretty. I, I know um, Mayor Shipley wants perfect lawns everywhere in town, <laughs> manicured perfectly. Um, but there are things you could do to um, reduce the erosion. But the actual maintaining of the um, detention basins um, we're mainly looking at changing how those discharge and calculating the um, the uh, outpipes of those differently to control the downstream flow a little bit differently as part of the design criteria. I don't think I answered that question. That's okay. Well. I saw Matt turn his camera on. I don't want to be out on here. I should have punted that five minutes ago. If he wanted to say something to that. So... Uh, Commissioner Finkel, well, first of all, Matt Bond, engineering program manager, uh, AKA stormwater engineer. Um, so on the newer developments, when we have platting, we, we dedicate a lot of those streams as drainage easements. And it's not so that the city can take over, but it's the property owner's still responsibility to maintain that even if there's a, a drainage easement that's been designated on their property or dedicated to their property. That actually allows the city to get in there if we have some kind of obstruction to legally get in there and remove that obstruction. So, you know, if we can reach it from the right of way around any of the bridge culverts or the smaller culverts or the storm sewer pipes, those, we do that. But Nick's right, we, we don't maintain any of those private streams that cut back through people's backyards. For one, we, we have a uh, an access issue to get those, to get to clean those out to, to, for the most part. But uh, on all the newer development, if, if you've got that platted as a new property and there's a riparian area, we go ahead and dedicate that as drainage easement so that we can get in there if there's a problem. Because if you have a blockage, you're going to cause localized flooding and you're going to end up, you know, artificially raising the water surface elevation and causing problems for, say, a walkout basement that happens to be upstream of that. Thank you. Um, I, I'm sorry, I wanted to sort of be in that same vein that Commissioner Finkeldye was asking, which is um, about education. Um, 
you're already awfully busy. Um, how, how, what can we do uh, to help with that, that education of, of what belongs to who and who's responsible for what? No pressure. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head, so that's always dangerous. Should we, should we send letters to everyone that owns a detention basin within town and just like, just this, these are our records that show that you own that? I, I don't know. Because um, it is a struggle. Matt, bail, bail me out again. Yeah, so I I can speak to that. So we're in year three currently of our MS4 permit. In year four, we actually have it set up that we are going to go and inspect all of those detention basins. Each property owner is responsible for their own detention basin. So we actually have that either uh, in wording on the site plan or it's on the plat. So the property owner knows that they're responsible for that. So as part of our uh, points that we are to uh, acquire for our MS4 permit, that is one of the things we are gonna take on in the upcoming years. Currently we have all of the basins actually uh, located by GIS. So we have a layer that we know where they're all at, whether they're private, whether they're public, whether they're above ground, below ground. And if you have a detention basin, and it meets the 1% storm or holds that back, then you get a 58% reduction in your stormwater bill. So how we've handled that in the past is if we've had problems with somebody maintaining their basin, that the first thing they get is an NOV, a notice of violation saying, hey, this needs to be cleaned up. And if that's not done in a timely fashion, then we uh, suspend their 58% credit, which more than doubles their stormwater bill. So I'm happy to report that we haven't done that very often. They usually get it cleaned up pretty quick, but that is the mechanism we use to make sure we have compliance. I did not know. Thank you. That, yes, thank you very much. That's helpful, very helpful. Uh, any other questions? Um, you have Vice something? Mayor Lawson. Oh, Vice Mayor. Yeah, I got a, I got a um, couple of questions on the on the set of goals met for stormwater. The slide that was about three from the end there. Could you talk a little bit about what those goals are that we have met, and whether it's a yearly goal or 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 just a one-time goal, or how does the, how does that yeah. work? So it, it's a yearly goal. The first one is um percent of inlets inspected. And then the second one is percent of the system CCTV. Then I'm blanking. So that's CCTV is closed caption television, running a rob robot up and down the pipe to see what the failure is. So I believe one is 5% of the system and one is 10% of the system. I'm blanking on which one's which at the moment, but I can tell you for the last year in the next couple years, while we're blanketing the system and trying to inspect the um, entire system, we are gonna be well above that. But then after that first, after that project's over, we'll need to maintain those levels of inspection um, as required with our MS4 permit. And then um, the next one is um, percent of our streets swept, which our goal is 400%. And um, we have been over that the last couple of years. Um, um, so that's a water quality issue because whatever we're sweeping and sucking off the street isn't going down the storm drain. Um, so that goal is 400% of the city streets, which on average means we're 
doing the whole city four times. I know that some parts of the city are done more than other parts. Then the last one is um, resolving the notice of violations quickly within the, the deadline, which a lot, that's the one we haven't met. And um, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, I was talking to Trevor, um, gosh, which one was he telling me about where they were waiting for a part and it just like couldn't, you know, there's supply chain issues. And, you know, I think the, the uh, last year we, we 16 out of 18, I believe was resolved on time. And then that was just barely under the goal, but I, um, we still want to resolve the notice of violations quickly. Is the goal like 90%? Yes. The goal is 90%. I believe we're at 88 or something. So when I'm looking on our, uh, uh, sorry, this is Commissioner Larson. So when I'm looking on our website under under the CC4 for stormwater, and I see 75% um, as a progress indicator, does that mean that three of the four items you've listed on your slide right. uh, have been met? Is that what that means? That is what our Nicoid Engineering Program Manager, that is what that means with the fourth one being um, the notice of violations. We were just, we just missed that one last year. Okay. All right. Is there any way we can kind of make that more clear on the website? I don't know how you do that, but is there any, anything we can do to make it clear as to what those goals are and what that means when it says 75 or hundred percent or whatever? Um, Nicoid engineering program manager. I know, I guess I would say right now that I think our performance indicators are still being tweaked and we don't want to get kind of lost in the weeds sometimes of should that be 85% or 90% goal. Um, I would be happy to, if someone else wanted to speak, um, if we were going to provide more detail on that. There, uh, um, this has been an arm wrestling match because there's so much data and these nice people love their data and then translating so many layers uh, to something that's really tight and digestible to communicate well with our public. All the things that are going into each of our measures has been the, the tough challenge. So we're we're open to, to trying to tweak it. We wanna make sure that the data is always has great integrity, but the challenge will always be if we showed everybody all the things that we're paying attention to, to do this work, that are important to do this work, it, it will it will not it'll be hard for to keep most people's attention. So um, I think we could put a lot more detail, and maybe the answer is everything is clickable, and you can drill down and drill down and drill down because there's there's that many layers of really interesting data um, about all of our systems. But what they were really challenged to do in this one connected city uh, outcome area is uh, to try and reflect some very different kinds of systems that are interconnected, but behave differently uh, because transit's on there here too. <laughs> so we're talking about uh, sewer pipes and how efficiently we're moving people on our transit system. Sure. sure. Another okay. thing. Okay, I appreciate that. It's just when I look on the website at these indicators and and I just see 75%, I don't see anything that explains, that I can see anyway, as to what that 75% means or what are we targeting. Um, like they've detailed here the four items, which you know, is helpful. So and I, I just noticed that I know we're still in the process of trying to tweak all this and 
maybe that'll become clearer as we get it more tweaked. But that's one thing I do notice about um, the dashboard is, is it has tendency to, um, I don't always see where it's real clearly indicated as to what those target targets mean or um, how they were being accomplished or uh, met, so to speak. So, um, but I, I do appreciate the data and then the information that definitely makes it more clear just hearing this like tonight. I appreciate that. I, I hope we'll be able to add, or Nick Hoyt, engineering program manager, I hope we'll be able to add that more detail when we are real confident in how we measure things. Because sometimes what is an inlet inspection, you can kind of get lost in the weeds of what exactly qualifies for that. So I think we're still kind of working through the process on that with how many CC4 numbers are there? There's probably 60 within the one CC4. Just in that one. Yeah. All right, thank you. Any other questions? I I got a little one. Uh, you kind of mentioned, but I don't, I don't know that you followed up on it. Um, the word I've heard is swales, but I think you used maybe green infrastructure or something like that. Um, we don't really have anything or we don't really have anything um, in policy, but I've seen other cities that have gotten grant opportunities and, and things like that. Um, what do you got to say about that? <laughs> um, I think I'm going to go ahead and punt that because okay. here in an hour, I think we're going to get, I know, or I know we're going to get more detail on that in about an hour. And we have okay. Um, okay. Andy That's with Burns and Mac, who's much smarter than me. So um, we will, is that okay? That's fine with me. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? Let's make sure there's no public comment in the room. I see you. <laughs> I didn't originally come up here to speak on stormwater, but since opportunity. Uh, Ted Boyle, North Lawrence Improvement. Uh, yeah, he made a couple mistakes. He referred to downtown as the oldest neighborhood North Lawrence Jefferson is. Uh, also, uh, uh, stormwater, we were flooded out in 93 by stormwater. It wasn't the river. We didn't have any water from the river flood us. It was storm water from the north, northeast, and northwest runoff. And the tube going under North 2nd Street, Maple Grove Drainage District from Grant Township, that tube wasn't big enough. And it also was gravity feed going to the river. And so it couldn't accommodate the storm water from the north of us. Consequently, the North 2nd Street flooded from the Turnpike Bridge to Johnny's. And uh, so, but then by 95, lo and behold, we got a pump on North 2nd Street. And it's pumping water out of the Maple Grove Drainage District. But it takes us another 20 years to get the pump at 5th and Maple uh, for the residents internally. And at that time, when that pump was put in, $6.6 .6 million, that uh, the city made a presentation that the rest of the work was going to be done in-house by the city, realigning the ditches and culverts and that type of thing. And they said they could do it more economically and quicker than a contractor. Well, we're going on over six years since that statement was said, and we're still waiting 
and I confer with Matt Bond all the time. Matter of fact, we go on drive tour through North Lawrence and look at problem areas where the water still sits and still floods. If you're within a three block area of the pump, you're, you're not gonna have water in your ditch. But if you're any further away than that, the water can't get to the pump. And so, and it's always about the money. We all know that, it's always about the money. But you can do things on the other side of town, but you can't finish the project in North Lawrence. And uh, you know, the people are getting tired of waiting for it. Uh, you guys say that uh, you, and, and you know what I'm gonna hear? Oh, that was previous city commission. Poop. You know, that, that is, uh, you are the governing body and you should finish projects that you start on the stated timeline that you say. And Matt is doing his best with the money he's got, but usually about three or four months into the fiscal year, out of money. And what we get, we get a little piece Time. of the stormwater revenue from the city. We get a little piece. Sorry, Ted. And when we're run out of money, when you run out of money, the water starts getting deep. Thank you, Ted. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any public comment online? Yeah, well, I might not be. Here. Is there any oh, public yeah. comment online? Nothing? Okay. Let's bring it back to the commission. Um, any other questions or follow-up on that? Um, I'm actually kind of curious to what uh, Mr. Bo Mr. Boyle was speaking about um, in regards to that project about six years ago and its status. Um, yeah, uh, Nick Hoyt, Engineering Program Manager. Um, I will say that you know what he was talking about with the flood and stuff where I might not have been precise. I was trying to convey that same message. Where North Lawrence is kind of like a bowl, the levee around it, and it was pump. You're trying to pump out of it, and the flood from '93 wasn't caused by the river overtopping the levee. It's just like we couldn't get water out of the bowl um, quick enough. Um, specific to the Maple Pump Station. Um, I personally can't speak to any promises made to the neighborhood. I will say that there is a um, severe lack of staffing in our field group and we aren't accomplishing a lot of things. And we're doing our best and we're managing resources as, as possible, as best possible. Um, the goal of the storm asset ID program that we're um, gonna talk about here in a little bit is Basically, let's find out where all our storm problems are and let's judge them equally and um, best allocate resources to the, to the issues going forward. Um, if anybody else wanted to speak to specific promises made 15 years ago, or ten, five years ago-ish, um, I wouldn't know about that specifically. Thank you, Nick. Any other questions? Was there anybody out there that knew about that like five or six years ago? So I'm, I'm just making sure. Or like. Matt. So, engineering, Matt Vaughn, engineering program manager, I'll speak to that too. To a certain degree. So what Ted's talking about is we had talked about uh, taking internal crews and trying to, to clean up a lot of those drainage ditches to get uh, the uh, stormwater in a more efficient fashion to the pump station. Part of the problem is with that is a lot of the, as everyone knows, uh, North Lawrence is fairly flat. And so if I've got, you know, two tenths of fall in a block 
sometimes that that's not enough to get the water over as fast as we can or as efficient as we can. So a lot of those projects, like Nick said, have kind of been on hold because we're we're reevaluating the entire uh, city with the current asset project and putting those all in a ranking system. So we'll talk about a little bit more of that as in the next hour when we talk. Uh, here on the next agenda item, but uh, th that's primarily why, why it hasn't advanced any farther is we've, hey, we've stopped, we've got this project going, let's let's see what the, the, the specific needs are. So one of the things that I found was interesting when I became stormwater engineer is in the 96 plan, the intersection of 23rd and Osdall was actually a second tier project, which I found a little interesting because that's the only major crossing from the west side to the east side or vice versa vice versa in town and i was like well when that's flooded and it's been like that since i was a kid and that hasn't done it since we we fixed it in fact i can tell you in 2019 i specifically went down there during a couple of our heavy rain events and we didn't even hold a drop of water in that intersection so I, so I bring that up is because that's a point of, hey, if I had had chance, you know, as soon as we were out of our double bond capacity, so Nick showed those five projects that we put in, and we had, we were paying double bonds up until 2009, and we didn't pay the last of the stormwater bonds off in 2018. I wasn't able to do a major stormwater capital improvement project until the Maple Lawrence, or the Sixth Street, uh, Maple Street project was up and that was funded through sales tax infrastructure money. And the second one I was able to do was 23rd Nosdal, and a major portion of that was funded by KDOT buyback funds. So now that we have our our uh, our utility up and running, and I would say we're we're getting there as far as being adequately financed, we still have some things to tweak that we're headed in the right direction. Nick made a really good point. I know our street division has been anywhere from six to 13 positions down for the last three years. I think we're right around six. I think that's right. I may be wrong, but there was a period there for about two years and I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just telling you the way it is. When, when I don't have field folks to do stuff, I can't go dip ditches. We're just trying to fill potholes and keep up with the basic maintenance that we need. So, that speaks to some of what uh, Mr. Boyle was speaking about, and and, I, and I'll call him Ted because I consider Ted a friend. We've gone out, and he has shown me, and we've worked really hard trying to address a lot of the issues in North Lawrence. So, thank you, Matt. Uh, Nick Hoyt, Engineering Program Manager. I just wanted to throw in one thing: we did spend this year right around four hundred thousand dollars redoing the pumps at the Maple Grove pump station right there on North Second. One new pump was around two hundred fifty, and then we rebuilt the second pump that I think was around one thirty. So I mean, the we are still thinking about North Lawrence. We're still, you know, trying to make sure we can get the water out of the bowl. It, it's a challenge. Can I make one Thanks a comment on that about uh, county? Um, hold on, Ted. Hold on, Ted. Give me a second. Um, let, let me ask one question, and then I'll ask you a question. How about that? Okay. Thank you. Um, uh, the street sweeping, uh, Nick and or Matt, um, and, and it's clearly a huge job, as you've indicated, um, not to create new work for you, but um, that might be a place perhaps where education could go through neighborhoods. Um, 
because I see it all the time and I shake my fist at the sky when people have their grass clippings in the road and all that kind of stuff. So I just as a suggestion, either to you all or to communications uh, to maybe find some time to speak with neighborhoods and educate them because neighbors are often the best educators and they're free educators. Um, just a little suggestion there. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and ask a question about how the county interacts with North Lawrence. Well, Ted, I'm giving you two minutes, be focused. Well, uh, there's three minutes, don't get it, man. But the deal is Maple Grove, uh, John Newmore, which he's chair of the Maple Grove Drainage District, Call Valley Drainage District, he contacted me and they were going to clear the brush and increase the flow of water coming in on the uh, west side of the airport and that's where that water come from. So I contacted Matt <clears throat> about it and he goes, hey, he goes, uh, that can't happen because the uh, Second Street pump is at capacity right now. So it couldn't take no more water. So then I contacted uh, John Nemore and Matt and we had a meeting and, and a resident out, uh, Don Hickson, out by the airport, they were gonna cut a trench up by his yard to increase the flow. And the deal is the North, the, the Second Street pump can't take no more water. It's at capacity right now. And Matt told me that they've even changed the impellers on it to increase the volume. So and thank you for already need another pump yeah. on North 2nd Street. Thank you for bringing that up. Let me um, ask Matt or um, Nick. Um, obviously, there's a larger area which extends out to the county. Can you comment on that? Yeah, program manager. So the drainage study that was done in 2003, it actually <clears throat> had uh, provided a project that uh, a, a pump station be built north of uh, 2440. So essentially they would raise 2440 to keep all the water from Maple Grove drainage from coming into town. And then it would locate a pump station to pick that up from the, from the, uh, from Maple Grove drainage and pump it straight to the Kansas River instead of waiting until it got all the way to Second Street. Thank you. That's very interesting. That's helpful. Thank you. Any other questions from commissioners or comments? Man, that was awesome. Thanks, Nick. And Jake, you did a good job. Too. So great. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. That that gave us a lot to chew on. I want to check on commissioners' physical well-being here. Uh, do commissioners need a five-minute break? Carry on. Move on. Vice Mayor, are you good? Okay. Let's go ahead and move on then to our first regular agenda item. Uh, discussion on possible expansion of utility assistant programs. Thanks, Jake. Evening, Mayor and commissioners. I'm Christy Webb, utility billing manager. Um, let me share my screen. Okay. Hopefully you can see that okay. Um, so this report is in response to um, an August 9th um, city commission direction. And so this, um, so we don't have an expanded plan that we're offering right now, but we wanted to share some additional information so that we can help determine what the next steps are. So that's what this um, report is. 
So <clears throat> some of you may already know this, um, but so right now, currently we have um, the city of Lawrence offers two programs to assist with utility bills. So we have a, a program that was um, started in 1999 that we call um, it's it's the low income elderly rate that provides a 65% rate discount for qualified low income elderly residents. Um, and then the second program we have, which is one that we just started last year, is a customer donation funded utility assistance program. And I'm going to talk more about both of those in these future slides. So the low income elderly rate. So to qualify for that, um, a person would need to be 60 years or older. Um, and then they would have to have a household income from all sources from the previous year of no more than 14,168 or not more than 19,162 if they file as head of household under taxes. Um, th those income thresholds are based on 110% of the federal poverty level. So those do get reset each year. Um, and then for the uh, utility assistance program that's donation funded, <clears throat> so to qualify for that, so um, I'll provide a little bit more information than what's on the slide, but those um, those those are applications that get reviewed by Catholic Charities. Um, they they're going to review those to determine if they qualify, and they're going to look at these qualification criteria to determine if they qualify. So households must have income at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. <clears throat> Assistance must guarantee at least 30 days of utility service or service restoration. And then um, they are also asked to provide either a disconnect notice um, or, you know, sometimes it's that that bill that says, you know, you, you're subject to disconnect if um, you don't pay your bill soon. Um, they also must provide a photo ID of the person list on the bill because um, they must live in the house and then income ver verification for the last 30 days for all members of the household. Um, so as of September 30th, as of last month, we um, we have um, 75 people who are participating in the low income elderly rate program. Um, and then we have 11 utility customers that have received um, assistance through the utility assistance program, and that assistance totaled $3,956. Um, and so, and because I'll go back to that slide, you know, with that utility assistance program, we are limited to, to the assistance is limited based on the amount of donations we've received. So, you know, depending on the amount of donations we have, that have been paid that determines how much we can assist each month. Um, I did want to mention, you know, just because we are talking about utility assistance, that there are other um, community assistance programs that are available um, that our utility customers have been taking advantage of. Um, the, the probably the biggest one is the um, Kansas Emergency Rental Assistance Program, otherwise called uh, Cura. That has helped quite a few of our customers. Um, as you can see, we've so far received over $800,000 in assistance um, or donations or not donations, utility bills paid um, from that program. And that's assisted 894 utility accounts. I did want to mention though, that this program, we have we have received information from, um, from Kira that this program is expected to end this month because the funding has been exhausted. This was this program was funded through federal funds and those funds have not been um, continued at this point. So they are expecting 
their funding to be exhausted, unfortunately. Um, another program that we're seeing some assistance come through is to come through on is the Kansas Homeowner Assistance Fund. Um, and it, that one is a little bit slower to start, um, but so far we've received $12,000, over $12,000 in um, utility bills that have been paid across 21 accounts. And I think we'll continue to see more of those. So the difference, they're, they're, it's very similar to Cura, but it's for homeowners um, rather than people that rent. So, um, so I do think we'll see more assistance come through from that program. Um, we're also seeing help through the emergency water assistance program. Um, that's run by DCF. Um, and so far we've received over $128,000 um, across 162 accounts. And then, you know, regularly, we we receive um, assistance or you know um, utility bills that have been paid through other local agencies. So that's that's pretty common. That's been um, that way for many many years. And typically, we'll see at least forty five customer accounts are assisted um, each month from some of the local agencies. Um, so one of the things that we were thinking about, you know, trying to find ways to expand how we can, you know, help more, more of our utility customers, how we can impact more people is, you know, the, the thought was out there to maybe consider tapping into the American Rescue Plan Act funds, but it's it's not very clear when we, when we read up on that, if it can be used for a utility assistance and there is concern, you know, to develop a program around that, whether, you know, staff has availability or the capacity to um, administer that kind of program. Um, so the other thing that we thought of was expanding the low-income elderly rate to additional populations that are younger than 60 years of age. Um, if we're going to expand that program, that funding for that would need to come out of the general fund. So that's, that's a, a factor to consider um, if we're going to uh, provide you know more research into that. Um, I would um, recommend if we are going to look at expanding the low-income rate to use the low-income energy assistance program as um, an eligibility um, determinant just because um, that program is already collecting um, you know household income information and, and other um, demographic information about those households so that those of us in utility billing wouldn't have to receive those confidential documents because, um, you know, it's just less confidential documents we would have to worry about storing um, and it would be less staff time to have to receive those documents and process those documents and review those documents. So using that as um, that eligibility as a determinant would be um, would make a lot of sense in, in as far as I'm concerned. Um, so this, I just wanted to throw this slide out here as um, what, so if, you know, if we consider expanding that low income rate, what what kind of costs we might be looking at, you know, and this is, this is just very, this, this is definitely estimates. And where I got this data, this is from, um, this is provided from DCF. Um, and based on those, um, households that are eligible for the low-income energy assistance program. So using that data and trying to extrapolate that, that's where some of this data, that's where this data did come from. So, you know, it's, it is, it is an estimate. It's not, you know, 
set in stone or anything, but it's best estimate we could come up with for now. Um, so some questions we would have or some you know direction we would be looking for is um, do we want to reprioritize work to make you know researching um, expanding this program a priority um, what type of criteria do you think would be appropriate to use to determine eligibility for this program and then we'd want to consider how the program should be funded um, if we are going to expand it so that's um so that's that's what I have but what questions do you all have for me on this just a Clarification question on the on the, you have the one chart that talks about community assistance available and you list the several programs, but you don't list LEAP or LIEAP as one of those programs. Are we getting money now from that program? Oh, good question. So no, um, it only helps with elect electric electricity and gas. It does not help with water or floor, so we don't receive any funding from that. I see. Yeah, that helps. Thank you. Yeah. Commissioner Sellers, you got anything? I do. Kristen, I had a, just a couple of questions. In the presentation um, for the um, low-income program, it says that um, household income from all sources, but it, I don't see the sources listed on the application. What all sources of income are taken into account for the application? Yeah, um, so, so we would ask for any... Um, adult living in that household to provide um, any, you know, provide information on any income they receive. So, um, so say it's someone that is over 60, but they have um, an adult child living with them, then we would ask if, for information on, on income for that person as well. Does that make sense? Yes, and an adult being anyone 18 years of age or older. Okay, and then for the local agencies that provide um, assistance, it's usually one, like a one-time, one-off. Do you know if individuals who receive that assistance, are they typically double dipping? So are they able to receive service, you know, funding assistance from Catholic Charities and then maybe from, you know, housing cooperative or, or something else. So are, do you see that when individuals who are receiving assistance on their their yeah. utility bills? We do. And and I um, I joined the, so there's a housing stabilization, stabilization collaborative meeting that's once a week, once a month. And um, the, the housing stabilization collaborative is a, a, a fairly new organization that, um, connects all the other social agencies in town it's it's a it's a great group and and so they meet regularly to talk about um it's it's so they what I, sh I should back up and say they they meet to coordinate how um households should receive assistance which i think is is, is brilliant so um so that way they're using their resources the best and so we absolutely will see households um you know, maybe go to Catholic Charities or the Ballard Center, um, you know, different times throughout the year and get assistance from both. But I do know that all those groups are aware of that and they're they're coordinating that um, very well so that, yeah, I think they're making best use of those resources. So 
but yes, I, I would use the people tap into multiple um, avenues for that. Okay. Um, and then on the community assistance uh, slide, slide 10, Kira, KF, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to use acronyms, cause, but the three, the top three that are listed, those are all ARPA slash, you know, CARE slash ARPA dollars, federal dollars that they're, they're here until they're exhausted, correct? Exactly. Yep, that is exactly right. And, and I, and I, can tell you more about the emergency water assistance program that it is a one-time only um, assistance. So once a household has received assistance through that program, they can't apply again. Whereas with um, the, the Kansas emergency rental assistance program, I know for a fact people could um, could apply multiple times. Um, I'm not that familiar with the Kansas homeowners assistance fund in terms of if, if they can apply multiple times because it's it's newer and you know they're still kind of getting through their their first initial wave of ap applicants so um, so I'm not sure on that one. Okay. And then um, my last question is um, I know you had spoke a little bit to billing options and support for individuals who are behind like if there's payment arrangements that are made and you mentioned that during the moratorium we as that um sunset we did provide payment arrangements but we've not extended that payment arrangement option for utility services past that or only for those individuals that experience um needing assistance during the, during COVID essentially or during the moratorium due to COVID, correct? That's correct. Any other questions? Vice Mayor, I can't see you. Do you have any questions? No, I'm fine. This is Vice Mayor Larson. Yeah, I'm fine right now. Thank you. All right, then let's make sure there's no public comment. <clears throat> In the room, not seeing any. Is there any public comment online? Raise your digital hand. <coughs> There's no comments, Mayor. All right, let's bring it back to the commission. Any discussion or further questions? I, it's kind of a comment and but a question maybe for Christy about the housing stabilization cooperative. Um, I know one of your recommendations was using, you know, the LEAP program. What would you thought it be about, you know, funding the, this stabilization with the direction that it has to be used on City of Wado? I mean, I, I know we, they also get money from AHAB, but if, if we put additional money in that said needs to be used for Lawrence Wado bills, which, you know, what do you think about a, a process? process like that? Christy Webb, utility billing manager. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly that would also be a, a very valuable um, group to to channel the money through, just because um, they they're they're already used to you know working with these populations, and and it's not just a matter of directly providing assistance. It's it's the the um, it's the counseling and the and the further resources they can offer that's that's really valuable too so it's um you know it's not just a matter of hey yeah we'll, we'll pay your water bill you know they're they're offering multiple other um ways that they can assist these households so 
Um, so yeah, I would be very supportive of that just because I think what they do is um, excellent work and I think they, they utilize their resources really well. And, and like and like you were saying, um, I, I think it would, you know, to earmark this this funding specifically for just for city launch water bills would would make a lot of sense because right now they're having to take their funding and stretch it between you know rental assistance and electrical bills and water bills. So you know it gets spread pretty thin. And someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think the county used OPA funds to help support the housing stabilization collaborative. I believe they did. So again, I'm not sure if that's a kind of a way around, um, you know, using all pedalos to fund something services. like that, as opposed to, you know, directly using it for our own utilities. I could see that being slightly different. Yeah, we jumped on, I don't know if. It almost identifies as supportive services, but I don't want to. Go ahead, Jeremy. Jeremy Willman, finance director, thank you. Uh, not to muddy these waters at all, but um, <laughs> there is some flexibility through the ARPA program um, using the revenue loss provision. Uh, we could essentially expend these dollars and then just reimburse ourselves uh, from the ARPA, if that's your, uh, your wish, use, utilizing that revenue loss provision of the ARPA code, uh, rather than going to a program specific code. Um, which Christy is right, there's no provision in the water uh, infrastructure section of the ARPA that would allow for uh, utility assistance. So um, just to, you know, we really haven't had a discussion about, you know, how we earmark the, the ARPA allocation yet, um, but you, you certainly could within the revenue loss provision uh, make a, make an allocation uh, for this type of expenditure for governmental services. And uh, Jeremy, this is a questioner, Little John, that would be short term though, um, like uh, until the ARPA dollars are expended, and then we would have to figure out other options, right? Jeremy, well, as finance director, that is correct. The um, ARPA ends in uh, 2024. Uh, there are provisions, however, in the ARPA to go to 2026 if the funds have been uh, obligated, and that word is sort of being contested right now as to what that definition means. Um, but this type of program would end in 2024. I don't believe it would meet the definition of obligation that's currently being discussed by the Department of Treasury. I will say I just looked up Douglas County's list, and among you know, many uses, they list a million dollars to the housing stabilization collaborative shared rent use utility assistance program. So. Any other discussion? Chris and I had a, just a, a couple of things. Um, maybe because I've been sitting on them for a couple of weeks, but thank you for the presentation and I Appreciate the commission deferring this until I was here. I don't know if I was meant to be the star of the show or just a discussion starter. Um, I, I, I did when I looked at this, I 
you know, I thought about, you know, the conversation that was had during the AHAB meeting in regards to funds for the Affordable Housing Trust Fund and using affordable house uh, and those dollars being used for affordable housing and supportive services. So I was looking in that vein of, of funding opportunities in addition to ARPA dollars. If, um, to Commissioner Littlejohn's point that it would only be for a short term. Um, as far as the um, billing options, uh, well, not the billing options, let me back up a little bit. As far as the eligibility for the program, I, I do believe um, using the LEAP eligibility puts us in line um, with that. I, I was a little bit um, worried about the, the use of the one ten percent of the federal probably line. It kind of sounds like that was maybe most programs don't use that because that's not on kind of the chart of standards. So it's kind of like nitpicking or but I mean, there's programs that use one hundred and thirty eight percent as well. And that's not on the chart. So um, I do appreciate uh, the idea of using um, leaps um, eligibility criteria for that. Um, some high-level thoughts that I had about the about the program and looking at it and um, maybe doing a little bit deeper, um, um, you know, thought on how to to restructure it or potential scenarios on restructuring it, um, possibly as a tiered approach. And so, um, anyone that's up to 138 percent. Uh, would be in that 65% discount, and then anyone from 138 to 150% of the federal poverty line would receive a 45% discount. And it comes to pass is that if you look at national averages and based on the uh, chart that you provided in the presentation, um, you utility monthly income utilities should not exceed more than 10% of one's monthly in income so a utility bill such as water uh, stormwater sanitation shouldn't um, should not exceed anywhere between two and a half and five percent using that two-tiered approach seeing that most I would imagine or I, I, I'd hypothesize that most of our individuals under um, 60 would be under that 138 and then um, the 138 to 50 would be available for those if we expanded um, eligibility as far as expanding the eligibility what those popu what eligible populations that would be um, definitely would consider individuals who are receiving um, VASH services or um, vouchers or assistance through the VA, um, individuals that have a permanent disability, um, and, and, and as well as individuals who are 60 and plus, um, in addition to those who are receiving housing vouchers. Uh, my rationale for that would be that most of these um, most of those populations are on fixed incomes. Um, and what we've heard from um, our partners is that as an individual is receiving a voucher for housing, any way to streamline their utility payments would allow for dollars to, that would, uh, that would increase the ability of dollars to be leveraged um, and, and stretched more um, to, to, to benefit um, more individuals. So I wouldn't necessarily say that this would be an, an 
only on you know an all call for individuals to participate, but um, I would focus on those populations as those are uh, populations that are adversely impacted by high utility rates. Um, so individuals with vouchers, SSI, permanent disability. Um, individuals receiving a HUD voucher as well as um, any individual over the age of 60. Mm, other than that, you know, I, again, I, I would like to see us take a little bit more uh, deep dive into this. Um, I, I imagine something of this capacity is not going to, it's not going to impact, we're not going to bring this into effect within the, the, the year. Um, or even for the start of fiscal year 24, um, I would hope. But um, I think there's more work that could be done, especially if you know the commission is open to utilization of um, affordable housing dollars uh, to address this, um, since we know that the Housing Stabilization Cooperative have received dollars and more than likely they've been using those dollars not only for rental assistance, but for utility assistance. Um, we know LEAP is only for electricity um, and for gas, and so our water utilities are usually left um, with little uh, discount support. And so I think if looking at it based on the numbers you provided of individuals who qualify for LEAP, if we knew what those numbers were based on that tiered system of a 65% discount for those under 138 and then a 45% discount for those within the 138 to 150, I'd kind of like to see what that number would look like based on the, the chart you provided of the costs um, what that cost would be, and I imagine that it, it still would require additional staff costs, and I recognize that. But as far as the um, what that total bottom line of that 609, does that number change if we were to use a tiered approach? And I know that there's been tiered tiered approach used in other municipalities um, that use a little bit more aggressive federal poverty. Um, eligibility and so I'd like to keep it at 150 so since that's been the standard that we've used here in the city like a good approach so um, so yeah that's definitely something we can look further into and um, try to drill down on what those those the cost impact would be um, based on that. Yeah. And I know in, in your in our, the response to our questions, you did provide the number of individuals in the community that receive vouchers. And so um, I think that becomes our target group in addition to those who who are 60 years of age and over. And, and there might even be a lot of overlap between vouchers and those 60 and maybe not. So this gives us an opportunity to maybe get a more not a finite, but a number that we can then use to plug in and figure out what those what that cost would be annually to the city. So, thank you. Any other comments? Go ahead. Uh, just a, I mean, a couple of thoughts. One, I, I mean, certainly to the extent we're using general fund dollars, I do think we're looking at 2024. So I think we have some you know, time to to look at. Um, you know, some possibilities and see how that might fit in. Um, obviously, we have yet to we'll have some discussions about ALPA funds. Um, and, you know, again, certainly open 
you know, to other considerations. But I do think, you know, I, I'm pretty confident we can use ultra funds like the county on the, the housing stabilization collaborative. I know that, um, you know, it, they've got some money, of course, from the county. They've put in a, a $500,000 application from our affordable housing fund, along with many other applications. You know, whether or not it's funded, you know, be for a later date. Um, but I understand talking to some folks at Ballard today, you know, they are giving out $53,000 a month is their allocation. And this month it um, was out on October 1st. I mean, they used all 53,000 in one day. Mm -hmm. um, and they, and now they, now anyone who's applying is waiting until November 1st when there'll be another 53,000 to give out. So the need is high. Um, you know, that's what's in the current um, housing stabilization collaborative, as I understand it. And so, um, you know, I, I do think it's, as we talk about what we do with ALPA, I do think that's something that we could look at um, and use some of that money for, you know, for the next year. Well, knowing that that's just a one-year fix, looking, you know, further ahead as we look at, you know, some programs, um, you know, you know, for the 2024 year, got my thoughts. Any other comments, Vice Mayor? Oh no, try again. Oh no, you have nothing. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to make sure we answer their policy questions here. Um, this deeper dive, so you say, wasn't in our staff work plan this year. Um, do you want to give them direction to reprioritize that? I mean, if there's an opportunity for us to earmark ARPA dollars for it, then I think it becomes a priority. But I'm, I'm interested, again, I, again, I'm not sure what they meant by this year, and Christy maybe can explain, but I, I do think it, we have an extended period of time if we're not looking until 2024 to implement it. Um, and I also think using, um, again, outside groups maybe to funnel that money through or take it off our staff. Um, so that was kind of my thought process on that. When are we, I'm sorry, Commissioner Littlejohn, when are we anticipating that ARPA conversation to happen? Or do we have a plan for that yet? I'm not remembering that we scheduled anything yet. Okay. <laughs> Trying to see if there's anything. Yet. You were gone that night. Um, it's in. Yeah, we, 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 yeah, we, we have not uh, scheduled that yet, but um, the commissioners have expressed that you wanted to get that back soon. So we're, you know, we're working to prepare that conversation for you. Uh, Christy, I saw you uh, turn off your, uh, or turn on your microphone there. Um, I wondered if you were going to maybe approach the question or the suggestion that uh, Commissioner Finkelday is bringing up is, is there a kind way to to work with our partners without using them amiss? Christy Webb, Utility Building Manager. You know, honestly, I feel like um, in my my work that I have done with them, I I don't feel like they would feel that they're being used. Um, they one of the things that they're always struggling like 
Commissioner Finkelberg said, is they're running out of funding so quickly, you know, and so to have additional sources for funding, I think they would be very, very happy about that. Now, I mean, you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of them. I just that's the that's the sense I get is that you know the the funding just is getting exhausted so quickly especially now you know they had some more um, resources uh earlier but it's um it's it's more limited now so um so i i do feel like that would be a really good partnership and and um like commissioner finkel i said it, it would save some staff time if we're not the ones um reviewing and approving those applications I, I will make a note that I don't, and I point of clarification for Commissioner Finkel. I'm not interested in giving lump sums of money to organizations to dole out for utility assistance. That doesn't get to the root. Of, that doesn't get to the root of the policy issue. The policy issue is that we have individuals who are on that have limited income. And so if they're spending more than 10% of their income on utility costs, then they're now, their income burden, their, their rent burden, mortgage burden, and now utility burden. And so by, and I, and I get that this may require additional bodies. This is why I'd like to see more about what this could look like and how do we map this out. But the idea is that by creating, by expanding the current utility uh, discount program, we now we're becoming partners in this with, with our community, with our social service agencies to leverage their dollars that will be able to help more individuals and we're also hopefully mitigating the number of individuals who become delinquent on their bills or the, 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 the debt that we charge off because of individuals who don't pay their bills. So I, I just want to make sure that I, I'm not interested in dumping money to agencies. I'm looking to become partners in that we, we create a policy that is it, that we're still providing a service to our community, but we're providing a service at a reduced rate for those who are burdened and that need that additional support and that we know that they're always gonna be here in our community, but we're being good partners and with our social service agencies and helping them leverage their dollars to support them. Yeah, I don't think we're disagreeing. I guess okay. I'm saying that I was talking about the ALPA money and for 2023, we're okay. yet to have that program in right. place. And we can, I think we can use ALPA money to do that. You know, I, I think what you're talking about is the longer run, right? you know, 2024 and beyond. And so that's- You're using 23 think, as a stopgap. Yeah, I'm just saying, are we going to do anything in 2023? Well, one possibility is to use ALPA funds, funds- to be that stopgap, gotcha. To do that while we look at a, a bigger program. Is gotcha. Okay, then that brings us to our next question, which you kind of touched on. Um, is there, I, I hear one commissioner saying for sure, they're interested in using the LEAP criteria. Is there any comments or agreement among other commissioners? Well, again, I would only say, I think the LEAP, 
criteria is a good criteria. I'm not, I do think we want to find criteria that minimize the work that we do, you know, but I do think, for example, some of the things Commissioner Sellers talked about, the voucher program, for example, if you're on a voucher, you qualify. That would be another way that takes little work um, and, but allows us to get to some of those answers. Right. So I think LEAP is okay, but I, I think it's also okay maybe to look at some of the other variables. I, I do agree we don't want to get into the position of gathering lots of information and, right. and sorting through it and doing all that internally. Um, if there's if there's easier ways where someone else is doing that for us, I think those are the ones we want to look at. And, and, I, I, good and I would imagine we can you and... Kristen, correct me if I'm wrong. I know LEAP is for individuals who are at 150, that that 150% federal poverty. So, I mean, if there's someone that, you know, we're not exceeding that. So anyone, even if, it's, if we say up to 150%, anyone that is from zero to 150 would qualify. So it allows for us to use that streamline. Vice Mayor, I see you. Yeah, yeah, I I would be in agreement with on the leap using the leap as a criteria along with the vouchers. Those that seems reasonable to do that, and that obviously can be time and staff savings on that. Um, I am concerned about again any discussions on using ARPA funds for these ongoing expenses um, um, in a program. You know, I'm interested in a long term program that's gonna gonna you know help help our community members. You know. In the, in the long term, so to speak, and and so I, I'm I'm less apt to be agreeable to use ARPA funding for that. I, I do like the idea potentially of looking at um, whether or not um, through AHAB any of the funding could be used there through AHAB. I I look at it. I, I'm not sure yet. I'd have to know more, but. Kristen, I'll go back real quick and say as far as I, I know the first part of your question on the policy is work plan for this year. And I know Commissioner Finkelbein kind of alluded to this. I, I'm not necessarily interested in that something has to come back to us within this calendar year. I mean, if it's something that, you know, you you all want to pick up maybe in the quarter, first first half of the quarter. Um, I, I think that's that's doable. That'll coincide. That'll run concurrent with the the conversation that the commission will have about ARPA dollars. And then if a decision is made, then you know that that funding would be available. So, you know, as far as staff working on this, it doesn't necessarily. We I don't feel like we need to have something back before the end of the year. Christy, okay. from billing manager. Thank, thank you, Commissioner Sellers. Yeah, that that does help provide some clarification. And then that leads us to our last question, which is a little more open-ended, but we've talked about it a little. Um, how would we prefer to fund an expanded program? I interpret that to mean long-term and expanded. I, I, I think once we get the report back from Kristen, I think we can have a further discussion about that. I, you know, like I said, I brought up AHAB. You know, Commissioner Finkel and I discussed using some ARPA dollars as a stopgap, but as far as expanded, I. I don't know if we can fully commit to something right now until we can at least see what Kristen and her team puts together and we can have further discussion on that. Agree? All right, um, Christy, did we give you everything you need? 
yeah, I think I think um, we are good to to go with the next steps and um, see what more information I can gather and bring back for further discussion. So yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kristen. With this, thank you. Have a good night. Um, it is eight oh five. Where commissioners want to push ahead, or do they need a five minute break? I imagine this next agenda item is going to be a bit weedy, so we probably need to take a break. I'll give you five minutes. Okay. Everybody be real quick. We'll be back at 810. Almost. Ready, Mayor. Kurt? Yep. We're now returning to our meeting. Uh, that brings us to our second uh, regular agenda item, which is to receive an update on the stormwater system ID, assessment and model creation program. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Matt Bond, uh, Engineering Program Manager with Municipal Services and Operations Department. So in addition to the Connected City update that uh, Nick provided to you a little earlier this evening, this presentation is intended to provide you with a brief update on recently completed and ongoing stormwater projects. And then we also wanted to provide you with a deeper dive into the details of the stormwater system ID assessment and model creation project. So if you recall back on February 15th, we provided you with an update on the field activities of this uh, portion of the project. And tonight we'll focus more on the stormwater modeling and the technical portions of the project. So somebody advance a slide for me. So this map shows the stormwater projects where we began construction this year. As most of the residents around town are acutely aware, we have a lot of construction all over town since the beginning of this past spring. I'm happy to report that several of those stormwater projects have been completed, such as 13th in Kentucky and West 30th Court. However, the larger projects that you see on this map of Sharon Drive and 17th in Alabama are currently still under construction. We do plan to finish Sharon Drive by the end of this year and wrap up the more extensive 17th and Alabama project by the end of summer next year. As you may recall, the 17th and Alabama project is to, sol is to solve the flooding issues along Missouri and Alabama streets during uh, intense rainfall events. Uh, once complete, I'm confident that seeing pictures of people canoeing down Alabama will be a thing of the past. I should also add we intend to have all of the work on 19th Street and south of it completed by the end of this year. Uh, at this time, I'd also like to thank all of the residents who are adjacent to these stormwater projects. They have all been ex extremely patient and positive during our construction. And though, even though I don't have this, uh, we don't have this on the map, one other thing I'd like to highlight is even though the construction to rebuild uh, 19th Street and 23rd Street are not specifically stormwater projects, both replace and upgrade the entire respective storm sewer systems on both of those projects. Next slide. So the stormwater projects that we currently have under design are Freedom Hill Court, East 24th Street, Johnson Avenue, 9th and Maple Lane, and 11th and New York. We are also in the planning stages for Wilshire Drive. And then I'll conclude with the Jayhawk Watershed. Back on April 12th, we provided the commission with the findings of the Jayhawk Watershed study. The consultant is currently working on 60% plans from the Kansas River to approximately 9th and Mississippi. And the survey work and the geotechnical work are currently being wrapped up. So with that, I'll pass it back to Nick. Go to the next slide, Andy. 
uh, Nick Hoyt, engineering program manager. So uh, Matt said that uh, in February, we came to the commission, we presented the results of the field work of the storm asset ID program. So kind of just wanted to refresh everyone's mind of what we're trying to do. So from the previous presentation, I was talking about we weren't getting the job done with the resources we had. You know, so in the last couple of years, there's been more resources since and see all the projects we're doing. Now, the other thing we're trying to do with those resources is set the groundwork to make good decisions for decades to come. So what this project's all about is balancing resources and the need, figuring out where those needs are and making good decisions with those resources. So we're trying to do three things. The first thing is where is our storm system? Let's know that, what conditions it is in. So that's kind of the field work. And we've been doing that um, all throughout town this whole year. And then um, we're finishing up the pilot study on kind of the data management part, modeling, and how do we establish CIP projects? Because one thing we know for sure, these projects are extremely expensive. You know, Jayhawk uh, Watershed, you know, for the whole watershed, it was like $35 million, right? Because kind of we, you know, we, as I was showing before, the storm sewer in the buried in the ditch is not the level of service we want it to be, right? It's also extremely impactful, right? So it's like, who is ready for 19th Street to be open? I live in Southeast Lawrence and like, yes, 23rd Street construction affects my life and my family every day, multiple times a day, right? And they're rebuilding the entire storm system of that street. That's why it's taking a year and a half, right? So it's a ton of money and really impactful to the citizens' lives putting in the storm sewer system. So let's make good decisions. So that's where we're gonna bring Andy in and we got all this field data in, let's analyze that and let's determine what type of level of service we want to provide. How can we make improvements as things get redeveloped? How can we change our design criteria? And then what can we do in terms of capital projects to kind of get everyone on the same playing field? So with that, I'm going to turn it over with Andy. Um, he is live from a conference in New Orleans. <laughs> Okay. And I'm sure he wants to spend his New Orleans e New Orleans evening with us. So Andy would burn the back. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Uh, good evening, commissioners. Uh, Andy Sauer with Burns and McDonald. I'm the project manager uh, working with the truck design group, uh, who's the prime contractor for this project. Uh, I think uh, Aaron Jones is on the phone or on, on the Zoom meeting as well from Trek and then from Burns and McDonald. We also have uh, Mitch Godigan on who uh, did a lot of the obviously heavy lifting as far as the modeling some of the results will show tonight. So as Nick introduced, we'd like to kind of walk you through what we've been working on as a, as a team. And when I say a team, I mean, it also involves both Matt and, and Nick and other staff members. We've had several uh, workshops, more than just meetings of working through this. So we're really trying to lay the groundwork for being able to evaluate the entire city at, at some point. That's why I went through a pilot phase. So we could get the process in place. And that's what we'd like to talk about here today. So as, as mentioned earlier, back in February, the first two items of the data of the pilot study were reviewed at that time the process development, the data collection. What we're here today to talk about is some of the results of the modeling process. 
of how we're going to prioritize capital improvement projects across the multiple watersheds, and then uh, really trying to understand how we can best uh, use the funds that are available to the maximum benefit. That's really what we, we try to focus on. And so with that, we developed this watershed model of process. So with that, we've gone through these various scope items. So it started with evaluating and selecting models. When I say models, I mean computer simulations that represent the both historical rainfall events as well as uh, design events that we'll talk about here later. So we went through an evaluation process. The two models that were selected that we've been using is a, a model called PC Swim. Well, that's you know, we won't get any more into the modeling than that. So PC Swim is one of the models we're using, as well as a, a Corps of Engineers model called HEC or HEC, HECRAS 2D. Both for SWIM and HECRAS, we're using this in 2D, and we'll show some of the results, which means we're able to simulate uh, the flow of water, not just in one direction, one dimension, but in two dimensions. So we're really uh, using much more accurate models that simulate not only pipe flow, which I'll show later, as well as surface flooding. We then went and applied those models to our pilot watersheds, which were Northwest Burroughs and Quail Creek. We're going to focus on Northwest Burroughs tonight, just really for the uh, time management here tonight. But uh, we also did Quail Creek as well, so but we'll be focusing on Northwest Burroughs tonight. And then through that, we created these detailed models, and you'll see some of those results tonight. And then we wanted to define the stormwater evaluation process. The reason you do a pilot is to really hone in on the process because we want to be more efficient as we move forward with the rest of the watersheds. And then from that, we built off of that of one, we're having more accurate, accurately being able to simulate flooding. We're then going to show you how we're going to evaluate watershed improvements. And the key being we're looking at this on a watershed basis, not a uh, location by location, it's it's a looking at a systems approach across the watershed. And then what I'm most excited to discuss tonight is how we're looking at trying to define the affordable stormwater solution. So for other utilities like water and wastewater, it's pretty typical to do kind of a knee of the curve analysis, but in stormwater, it's pretty rare. So I, I do want to, you know, you know, pat the team on the back here a little bit that really kind of setting a new process here that's really an industry uh, leading leading industry standard now of looking at you know stormwater solutions differently more like a utility more about how can we maximize those benefits but as you see at the bottom of the slide our goal of course is to ultimately have a comprehensive prioritized citywide process for stormwater improvements and so that's what we're building towards as as we'll show some of those results tonight so what I'm going to focus on tonight uh, is just some background. I'll show you some of the modeling tools and outcomes, and we'll talk about how we define this affordable capital improvement process or, or ultimately get to go into the plan for the CIP. And then throughout this, I'll be focusing on the watershed process, that evaluation process. So our goal as a team was we wanted to create sustainable stormwater solutions that provide the greatest benefit at the most affordable cost. You know, that seems somewhat simple, but it's it's a challenging statement when you talk about stormwater because there's various uh, storms, how rainfall occurs now in the future. So how do you oh. sustainability? So 
as a team, we started to talk about some of these, these questions. Um, and they start with, you know, are we investing? I don't know. You're dropping here and there. Sorry. I know I got a deal said I was at a bad connection. Am I better now? You're okay right now. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. I, um, so yeah, let me know. I, I know Matt and Nick are both have my phone number so they can text me too if I drop. So I apologize. Um, what are the total benefits of the proposed stormwater solutions, right? So we, we trying to focus on multiple benefit solutions. Are we maximizing our current assets? And I think that's very important in fully developed watersheds, um, such as Burroughs Creek or Jayhawk, uh, where you have a lot of stormwater assets that are already in the ground. Our solutions need to maximize those. We can't be ripping up every street to replace the pipes. So how can we make a systems approach that improves the overall level of service? And then finally, what's really most, not most Important, but important item to keep in mind is, can we maintain what we have now and what we're going to be putting in the ground? So all those were factors that we considered as a team around developing sustainable stormwater solutions. So hopefully here, slides advance maybe. There we go. So sustainability, just the basis of sustainability, we're trying to do solutions today that are affordable, that don't impact future generations to meet their needs, right? And so the, the pillars of sustainability that I'm sure you've all seen, you know, what's our environmental impact? What's our social community impact? And what's the economic impact? When we think about that from a stormwater management standpoint, environmental means to me is is stormwater, if we think of it as a natural resource, as our solutions start to look different, can we manage that stormwater closer to where it falls with green infrastructure? From a community benefit, can we create more public benefit than just conveying water in a pipe that no one sees? And then on the economic side, can we build more affordable solutions? So that's, that's what we mean when we were talking about stormwater sustainability. And so what does that infrastructure look like? I'm sure many of you are familiar with these types of infrastructure that's out there. Some of it you may not see daily, but obviously our streets and our curbs and our gutters are part of the collection system that conveys stormwater down to typically some sort of a curb or great inlet. Once it's in the, the inlet, it's typically in a, in a conveyance pipe, uh, sometimes referred to as a storm sewer. And we have a whole network of pipes out there that the trekkers have been investigating and that, that system goes into our system model so we can evaluate that. Within the system, you also have storage where that's above ground, like a dry detention facility like shown here. It can be underground storage, it can be wet storage. And then finally, we're discharging that to channels and streams, but then those streams cross other infrastructure like streets and roads. So we have culverts and pipes that go underneath those. So that's all part of the system. But on a watershed approach we're taking on this project, we really wanna look at what's the most affordable integrated solution that may encompass all these, these types of infrastructure, right? It's not just one size fits all. We need a combination of these solutions to have the greatest impact. So what we modeled, and I know this is kind of a very simplistic graphic, but I think it, it tells the point, is we're modeling the enclosed system or the pipe system 
we're modeling how that's collected, but we're also modeling if that if that pipe system reaches capacity and it can no longer intake more stormwater. We're also able to model the surface storage or surface flooding, also referred to sometimes as overland conveyance. So once the, the pipe is full, we have we have surface conveyance down the streets. Obviously, sometimes that gets deeper and we have flooding, it goes over the curb and can impact property. So we're able to simulate that with these models and we'll show some of that later. And then we're also simulating the creeks and ditches and streams, the open channels, uh, such as Burroughs Creek itself, for example, we're simulating that as well. So all those things are being simulated and like I mentioned in two dimensions. So once again, we're using state of the, the art uh, system models and the data that uh, elevation data that the city already had collected, as well as the data that the track is collecting as far as the system, as far as pipes and inlets. So what's what drives stormwater models? What drives stormwater models is actually the rainfall, the rainfall amount intensity that we assume and we put into the model to say, okay, what is this type of rain cause as far as flooding, for example. And so up until a few years ago, most of the rainfall data we we're using was from the 1950s and 60s. And recently, what's referred to as NOAA Atlas 14 came out, and it's, it's a much more recent rainfall analysis. What's great about it is it provides both annual exceedance probability, which what's the chance of a certain event happening, but also within that given year, we also get an occurrence probability of that particular event. So we're able to look at a lot larger range of different events, it's better data. And instead of just looking at one event, we're looking at multiple events so we can uh, do this knee of the curve analysis that I'll show later. So bottom line, we're using better data and a range of events so that we can get a better understanding of the current level service for the system we have and the future improvement needs. So when we define flooding, of course, it means different things to different people sometimes, but in general, on the far left here, this is what we consider from an engineering standpoint that, that no flooding is occurring. So uh, the system is working, as you see in the picture here, it's coming down the gutter. There might be some uh, two or three inches of water on the street, which obviously we don't want people, you know, flying down the street, speeding on these types of streets, but it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's collecting flood, the water, it's going into the inlet, the inlet has capacity. But that still doesn't mean that when we, we look at improvement alternatives that we might be able to optimize the existing system and to reduce that cost of ownership. This gets back to the point of we don't need to replace everything we can optimize a system. So we need to understand that. So that's the no flooding condition. The center picture there is what we call minor flooding and where it's going more than six inches, it's exceeding the right of way. In this case, this picture, it's over the sidewalk, it's impacting private property. But in general, it may not be yet, hopefully not entering the habitable structure. But obviously our goal, you know, as a level of service across the city, we'd like to be able to eliminate this flooding for the more frequent events. Those events that have a probability that we'll talk about later, you know, a five or 10% in any given year, we wanna reduce that and eliminate that so we don't have that flooding anymore. And then the far right is the major flooding. I, I think 
Matt actually referenced this of someone canoeing down the street. So obviously we want to reduce that as, as much as we can based on the cost of those solutions. We may not be able to completely eliminate it, but we want to get it reduced down to where we're not impacting habitable structures and we're allowing emergency vehicles access, which generally means we want to get it down to, to less than six inches or, or at least have the center part of the lane open so we have emergency access. So that was that's what we're talking about when we're looking at our system improvements. This is what we want to help solve as we move forward with this program. So here's the steps we went through, and I'm going to walk through each of these steps, hopefully, uh, along the way. So it's clear of, of what we went through. We modeled the existing conditions. We then looked at a range of solutions that I'll show you for Northwest Boroughs, which is shown here in this graphic on the right. We then estimated the cost for those improvements to reduce the flooding based on those different range of rainfall events we looked at. And then we applied a cost benefit process to define the affordable solutions. So what does the model look like? The model of existing conditions used uh, both truck data as well as elevation data. So this is Northwest Boroughs, uh, Central Middle Schools kind of right in the center. Uh, the yellow lines, hopefully you can see them, are the pipe network. We've modeled up to 18 inch pipe diameter and larger. So Anytime you do kind of a systems model, there's a point where you don't have enough, yeah, you know, really, we want to have enough detail to have a good model. We don't need to go up and, and model every single smaller pipe. So at some point you have to say, this is, you know, as far up as we're going to go. And for this analysis, we looked at 18 inches and larger. And then we're modeling everything in 2D. That's what's kind of the blue area. And so the darker blue means deeper flooding. The lighter blue is shallow flooding. So hopefully here, see if I can play this for you. Hope this works. So this is what an actual rainfall event. We used historical rainfall events to kind of um, validate the model. So as the time goes along here, you'll see blue start to form along 16th Street, flood up around New Hampshire and down along uh, 15th Street. As the event starts to subside, you see the pipe system has capacity and starts to dewater the streets. So for each of the events, both historical events and design events, we'll talk about later, this is what the, the 2D model uh, provides to us, this detailed analysis of not only what the pipe capacity is, but where the surface flooding occurs. So then we validated those model results. Uh, this particular picture on the right was provided by the homeowner at 16th in New Hampshire. It was actually a video showing basically almost exactly what our model uh, predicted for that same rainfall event. So it's, it's always very helpful to have data like this pictures, video, that we can then validate that what the model is simulating is what uh, residents actually saw. So. That goes a long way in making sure that the tool uh, represents real world. So then next, we went through a range of solutions. So we put in different rainfall amounts and intensities into that model I just showed you. And so what the, the events we looked at are shown on this table. The top part of the table is 
the lower event, so that's a two-year, um, and that in any given year has a 50% annual exceedance probability. And then, like I mentioned with Atlas 14, the new rainfall data, we can also divide that up in occurrence probabilities. And so we can look at a wider range of different types of events. And so that's what this, mod, this table is showing. We looked at rainfall volumes from 2.6 all the way up over five inches of rain and peak intensities from a little over one inch to over five inches. Just for point of reference, the current Northwest Borough system has less than a two-year um, design event. So these older systems, it's not untypical that they have a very low level of service. So I'm gonna show you results for each of these uh, events here shown on this table. So the first event, so if, as we walk through this, you'll see in the bottom right-hand corner, the, the amount of rainfall that was simulated and then the peak rainfall intensity for that event. So for the two year 50%, the only area that had surface flooding was along 16th street there shown in blue. As we move up, now we're simulating 3.35 inches or 1.3 inches per hour intensity. That's equal to a five year 50%. So you see more flooding now along New Hampshire. We add more rainfall, more higher intensity, more area floods. So we move up to the next one, more area floods. And then our final one we looked at was 10 year, 10%. So you can see quite a bit of an area is filled in there with blue. We have flooding outside the right of way. And so that's what we looked at, a range of events there, okay? So then next we wanted to say, what did, would it cost to reduce or eliminate the flooding that was I just showed you? So we did a planning level cost for each of those. So I'm gonna walk through those in reverse order now. Here's the largest one, the 10 year 10%. To meet that level of service, we'd basically have to upsize or replace all the pipes that we simulated. So that's over 7,300 feet of pipe. We would disrupt a lot of the neighborhood here with tearing up the streets to put in bigger pipes. And the costs would be approximately $7 million. As we move down to a slightly lesser design event, uh, about 4,600 feet of pipe, we're now at 4.7 million. Similarly, as we move to the next event, we're impacting lesser area, 2,400 feet of pipe would need to be upsized at a cost of about 2.5. And then the five-year 50%, we're at 1.2 million, lesser amount of pipe replaced. So with each of those, like I mentioned, a planning level cost. We did also make cost assumptions that when you're doing larger pipe, you're gonna have a certain amount of street replacement cost. We're gonna... for adding back trees and seeding of the right of way. Oops, hope I didn't lose you guys again. <laughs> yeah. Did I break up again? I... Yeah, it's okay, you're okay now. Keep getting this little warning like, oh no, okay. Um, and then we're also, uh, as I think Nick and Matt have talked about more of this corridor approach. So we're also adding in some costs for any type of water, wastewater utility crossings it may have. And then uh, curb inlets and box junctions are also included in there. So 
this is a comprehensive planning cost that we're going to. So we've built this cost tool that we can apply so that we have some uniformity of evaluating all the costs. So hopefully here, my slide will advance. There we go. So I'm not going to go through all the detailed costs. I just wanted to give you a snapshot that we are putting quite a bit of detail in this cost tool. This is what it looks like. We are carrying a planning level contingency of 30%. We're adding in some typical percents as lump sum for different things that we can't do a detailed cost at this level for. We want to carry those costs. And then, of course, since our lovely time that we're in with inflation, we're also adding on another 10% for inflation. So we're getting, we want to have this total kind of all-in cost for these different solutions I just showed you. So then we take those costs and we can do a benefit cost analysis where the top part, where we model the existing condition and then we show the improved condition, that's our flood benefit. And that flood benefit is represented as reduced flood risk. And I'll, I'll, I'm gonna expand on this graph here in just a minute. And then this is that knee of the curve analysis. So I'll go to that one here next. And so here you see that range of solutions we looked at, the cost for each of those, and then the reduced flood risk. So the current system on any annual or any given year, based on the occurrence probability and the event probability is somewhere has a risk of the current system, let's say 37% approximately. And so what we're doing here is we're trying to get the greatest flood reduction benefit at the most reasonable cost. So that's the knee of the curve analysis. So for this particular watershed, Northwest boroughs, the highlighted blue area is what would be recommended for the most affordable solution that gives the greatest benefit. So each watershed that we evaluate could have a slightly different knee of the curve, but the idea is to maximize your financial resources and provide the greatest flood benefit. And so with that, this base stormwater improvement for Northwest boroughs is estimated or budgeted at 2.5 million, assuming that 10% inflation. We're also recommending that you budget for some other resilient type solutions when you're in these watersheds. We anticipate there's gonna be a certain amount of stormwater infrastructure, such as the pipes, storm sewers, that may need to be rehabbed or lined. We also recommend that in certain areas that you may consider doing some green stormwater infrastructure to build that resiliency of the system, whether that's some pervious pavers or, street, or tree planters. I'll show you some examples of that later. But to carry a budget of each of these watersheds so you can help bring back some green infrastructure to increase the resiliency of the system. And then finally, there's always going to be some additional point repairs as, as you're getting into the design that need to be done. So carrying another 5% in the budget for point repairs. So what that looks like, once again, for Northwest boroughs, that's our focus area tonight for part of our pilot, is a recommended base solution of that 2.5 million, which would be replacing or upsizing over 2,400 feet of pipe adding or replacing additional stormwater inlets, adding back 25 trees in this case along the street corridor. And then because of the amount of pipe you'd be adding, you'd be replacing a certain amount of curb and gutter, and then a certain amount, about 1,200 feet of this. 
in the street. Then we carry additional budget of other right-of-way improvements for rehab, green infrastructure and point repairs. And the estimated watershed CIP would be 3.1 million. The benefits would be over a 32% reduction in flooding. We would be optimizing the recent improvements. So you, if you see in this figure, um, hope I didn't lose you guys again. Okay. You're good, Andy. We can hear okay, you. all right, <laughs> I keep getting this. Unstable network, sorry. And then the blue area is improvements that have been done in this watershed since 1996. And so this gets back to this idea that we want to optimize the existing system. So that lower part of Northwest Burroughs, there's not any additional room to get more pipe through there. So this solution optimizes that and allows us to work more as a total system. It'll have less disruption to the neighborhood and it will add back green infrastructure and trees to this particular solution. Okay, and we have a couple more slides. The final thing we wanted to talk about tonight is this idea about one size doesn't fit all. So when you look at Northwest boroughs here shown in these three zones, we talked as a team about there's different improvement needs within the different zones. So I'm gonna first start with zone two. That's the area we just talked about that we modeled. That's a network of pipes that are 18 inches and larger. So in that zone, what we're going to be laying out across all these different watersheds is this idea of an affordable CIP to increase the level of service. Uh, we're going to try to preserve overland flow paths. So that means maybe aligning streets so they can carry water when the pipes are uh, overwhelmed. And we're trying to optimize that existing system for that lowest cost of ownership, right? That's zone two. Now in zone one, when we're above that, the value that the public value is more in, can we retain and detain stormwater where it falls? Can we add back green infrastructure? We don't need larger pipes being put at the top of the watershed. We need to right size those pipes to meet this downstream capacity, which we now know with the model. And then we wanna to try to disconnect directly connected impervious areas. So a parking lot going directly down to a street, uh, can we intercept that with some green infrastructure? Can we provide a greater value before it gets into the pipe system? And at the bottom end of the watershed zone three, that's where we need to be setting back from rivers and streams. We may want to consider becoming, you know, it's called a cooperating technical partner with FEMA, helps, in, you know, reduce some of the insurance rates and things and, and just continue to meet your floodplain regulations. So, what we're gonna come back with in, in a few months are some ideas about how the stormwater criteria can be updated and things. So we just wanted to introduce this today because we're really leaning towards kind of looking at different areas within watersheds may have different design criteria to maximize the value, that public value of the overall system. So we just wanted to kind of introduce that tonight. And then I just put in some pictures here of what those might look like. In zone one, uh, this is a project that for at least some of that upper uh, left uh, picture is a previous pavement project or a pavement 
where that's the actual collector. So the water sheets flows off and, the, and those pervious pavements let it flow through. There is no curb inlet. Um, you could do street planners, uh, zone one to zone two. That's kind of where you get into some, some smaller kind of regional solutions. Obviously zone two, we're gonna be increasing the pipe capacity in zone three, and you wanna set back from those floodplains. So my final slide here, I think before I go through what's next is, what we talked about as a, as a team, we wanna increase this public value. And that's kind of this, this connection between resiliency and sustainability. And I really think what this study is doing is it really is providing that, that broader collaboration and holistic system planning for the design and management of the public infrastructure. So I think what, what I'm saying here tonight is I think through the commission's leadership as well as Nick and Matt's leadership, we're really starting to connect these two, two items. And that's exciting to me because a lot of communities are not doing this and, and it does take a lot of planning and evaluation. But once you get to that point, you really can come up with some solutions that I think will be far more resilient and are sustainable. And that's also includes financial sustainability. So what's next? Uh, we're continuing field inspections The Trek is completing. We're going to be modeling uh, the rest of Burroughs Creek, as well as pulling in the Jayhawk watershed model. We're going to be utilizing these study results I showed tonight to help inform the stormwater criteria updates, or I should be saying that the stormwater criteria updates have already been applied to some of the newer projects, such as Jayhawk, trying to get that, that knee of the curve analysis. And then through this, like I mentioned, we want to define some recommendations that we'll be coming back to you with about updating the stormwater criteria or areas within the stormwater criteria that need updates. So with that, I'm going to put it back to Nick, I think. Um, Nick Hoyt, engineering program manager. So um, our, as we've been figuring out this modeling work over the last few months, we've been doing a ton of field work of just finding where is our system and what condition it was in. We had hoped by the end of this um, early next year into this year that we would pretty much have all the field work done and kind of this whole pink and green and yellow area. Um, we're still working towards that. Uh, that. That field work is combined Trek design group and city staff. So the city staff been real. Um, we, we assume that they would be about 80% on this project and that's been flipped because they, we've been doing a lot of, um, they've been doing um, utility locates, meter reads, water main breaks they are getting pulled off this project. So I kind of have a hatched out area there that we are hoping to accomplish by the, the field work by the end of this year. And um, that's kind of in question right now, but regardless, we're going to have a ton of field work at the end of this year, you know, over half the city. So then in the next year, we're going to kind of be running huge amount of data, data through that kind of modeling meat grinder that Andy lined out. And then within um, probably two years, we'll have the whole city done. Right. And then we'll be able to judge kind of everything equally. What's the level of service in um, this neighborhood to that neighborhood? Where, where are the different flooding problems? And it's not just based on complaints or, you know, hearsay of this area flooded. So um, with that, I'd be, I, well, it's, I will say 
some of that rainfall questions, you know, and Andy was going through the percentages of the different rainfall. He had explained that to me about five or six times before I got it. So um, some of it's really technical. But with that, if you have any questions, we will um, try to answer them as best we can. Thank you, Nick. Any questions? At the moment, Vice Mayor, I can't see. You have any questions? Yeah, I think. Or did she? Work? I think she said no. No. Okay. Um, any other? Anybody else? Like, do public comment here? Let's see if there's any public comment in the room. Ted, you got any comment on this? Nope. Okay. Any comment online? No, Mayor. All right, very good. Back to you, Nick. Uh, any questions or discussion other than how cool this is? Yeah, I'd like to. <laughs> it's a very impressive yeah. process. And Andy, thank you for your work and thanks for being here from New Orleans. Um, yeah, very impressive. And, and, you know, as we talk about where we're going in the future to have this data and to have this analysis and understand where best to utilize our dollars is really going to be invaluable for me. We're going to spend money, but we're going to know where we're spending it. So I appreciate that a lot. So thank you for the work on this. Yeah, um, no problem. Uh, Nick Coit, Engineering Program Manager. I will say at the moment, the data is almost like a fire hose. It's coming like, but it, it, I think it will be incredibly useful for a lot of projects, right? So we're looking at repaving 6th Street next year. And it's okay. Now we already know the condition of the storm sewers underneath the street and adjacent to the inlets adjacent to it. And hopefully we can not find the problems as we dig them up, you know? Um, so I'm hoping that we can kind of take that data and get it in a usable form quickly to help with sidewalk projects and street projects and the water main projects. And what's the condition of that storm sewer um, in the planning phase and not during the construction phase. Um, I, I just had a quick question, uh, Commissioner Littlejohn. Uh, this is all awesome, uh, especially being able to know exactly what's going on with our infrastructure. Um, once it's all mapped out, like a couple years down the line, what do you anticipate? Like, what yet? Do you have any anticipations of what it'll take to go ahead and maintain? Because um, I know just in the mapping process alone, we don't have the folks enough folks to go ahead and do that process. Uh, you. Will it just offset each other with efficiencies or do you? Are you talking it, about maintaining the system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maintaining the model. Uh, maintaining the system. Um, I know that's quite a bit ahead of time, but I, I figure like the more stuff we know, <laughs> the more that, you know, more people will take to go ahead and, you know, make sure it's okay. So I think, uh, or Nick Hoyt, engineering program manager, um, if you remember that triangle way back at the beginning, we were <laughs> balancing resources and needs right, right? and the, what was that balancing on is basically information right so i think when we get the goal is at the end of the project we'll have the information of where's our system what condition is in how much is it going to cost to to get it to where we want it to go and then that's a decision where um you guys can make good decisions about where should the the rates be to accomplish that goal and it's not kind of just shooting in the dark of let's make the rate increase 10 percent, and that'll make it somewhat better right so i think the goal is if we're increasing the rates this much or 
you know, or maintaining them, we will know what does that mean in terms of our system and what level of service we can provide and what projects can we get done. Um, that that's my goal at the end right. when we uh, for the project is be able to make good decisions. Gotcha. Thank you very much. This is very informative. And and I guess the only other thing I'd say, and you mentioned this earlier, and, and I'm not saying you aren't going to do this like I'm saying something really small, but I think the other benefit of this would be saying, um, you know, this is the best way if we were just doing stormwater, but now all of a sudden we know we're renovating New Hampshire Street because the street needs to be redone. You know, how do we use those two pieces of information and say, well, we might not have done it based upon this model, but because we're going to be there anyway, right. let's do it. And that might change and be able to use those, use that information integrated. Um, you know, I think really will is really where you see the big bang for the buck. Right. And, and vice versa. If we're going to, if we think this is what we have to do for stormwater, and, you know, we were going to repair that street four years from now, let's repair it now and match those up. I mean, I think we, we, we double the benefit. Right. Uh, Nick, uh, Nick engineering program manager, that is it in a nutshell. Yeah. So it's like, if we're going to do a project on mass to, um, you know, make it more of a multimodal thing, someone should be able to quickly look, what is the condition of the storm sewer? What needs to happen with the storm sewer and have that, part of the plan instead of we get way down the road and we're promising you that project's gonna be done on this year and then like oh well we need so many millions of dollars for the storm sewer system so and, and i think it works both ways and the end of this isn't going to be a cip list of here's the order over the next hundred years of the projects we're going to do it's going to be like here are the needs and when they overlap with other projects sanitary pedestrian or whatever then we know what needs to happen in that location and you know the projects will kind of form themselves much better um yeah and Nick, just to piggyback on that i think where my mind went thinking forward is to that piece as you as we look for as you have that list of of projects and how they overlap with other projects. I guess my thought is as a commissioner thinking of when it comes to the budget and our CIP process, do we then need to account for that? And is there a way to account for that in the CIP process of rating the different projects? If there's overlap, you know, does that get a bump then because there's potential overlap? So we then elevate that 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 score then becomes more elevated so that's where my thought was going with that so i do i do appreciate that as well as your your meat grinder analogy there but <laughs> at least so much to commissioner finkeldice point i think where we have an opportunity here to see is that this information will then provide another data point within me measuring and, and scoring the cip and is there a way, do we need to weigh that? And that's a, a potential question for commissioners, for the commission. That um, Coy engineering program manager. So the way the projects are scored now in the CIP to align with the CI, with, to align with the strategic plan kind of plays into that, right? So if we have a corridor approach where we know we want to add, you know, uh, bike facilities, redo the sidewalk, upgrade the street and um solve the stormwater flooding problem in a certain area and we're able to kind of know all those things going in 
that project is going to align really well with the strategic plan and score extremely high. So, but it's all about, you know, knowing the projects that need to happen at each location. So we aren't digging up the street 10 times and closing the street 10 times. Right. Um, but if we have that information, it'll feed into the scoring system as it is now, aligned with the strategic plan better, and we'll get better projects in the end for sure, and, and save money. Vice Mayor. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. Matt. What? <laughs> um, engineering program manager Matt Bond. I was just going to dovetail into what Nick just said. We're doing that where we can right now. So, like with the 17th and Alabama project. We already knew that we were going to inconvenience the neighborhood considerably with the storm sewer. So we're also replacing the water line along 18th Street with that project. So we're not waiting for all of these to, to come to fruition. We're acting on them as we're getting the data in. So uh, the 19th and Maple Lane project that I mentioned that's in design now, that dovetails not only storm sewer, but also uh, street condition and sanitary sewer. So you know to kind of double back to 17th and alabama we specifically stayed out of that area with some of our street maintenance because we knew this project was coming so as we develop more and more data and collect more information like craig was talking about is how much we love our data and nick's saying that we're drinking out of a fire hose then we can align our water line our sanitary sewer our storm sewer our pavement condition index what we're doing with the sidewalks and the ramps and and those things and we're bringing them all together as collective projects so they're they're more comprehensive so when we go into a neighborhood and we do a cip project we're doing it once hopefully as soon as we get the data in and then we're not coming back to inconvenience that neighborhood for hopefully the design life of whatever we just put in the ground. So, you know, the, the bottom line is, hey, we touch this and then we don't touch it again for 40 or 50 years. And then we, we continually do that and make better decisions on where we're going and how we're going to prioritize them. But then also on material sides, too. So, like, everything we're seeing is corrugated metal related. They're probably not going to like me to say this, but... So we took it out of the specs several years ago because I, I can't have pipe that's in the ground that's only going to last 20 years. So one of the things that we had tasked Burns and Mac with is, hey, some of our criteria, we I don't think we're getting the bang for the buck, like on detention basins. We need to look at that again because the, the storm and the rainfall intensities that have increased, we all saw that in 2019. I personally can tell you five different events that were, were stressing our system. And it's like, okay, what are we going to do to actually help us out. So one of the major things that we're doing with this project is taking a hard look at detention basins and how we do that. And that's what that's why we're looking at NOAA Atlas 14 and how those rainfall uh, uh, intensities go. This is my, yeah, this is Commissioner Larson. Yeah, I had a couple of questions. Um, so did I understand you correctly that we expect to have all the field work and data collected within two years on, on this basically half of the city. Is that what I heard? Um, the original plan was Trek's, Trek and uh, Burns and Mac's current second contract that was executed in February. Um, the original plan was that would be done about March and that would basically get all the field work east of Castle roughly. Um, that's, we aren't quite getting there because our field, our city staff has been diverted to other things, but, um, we will be close. 
so I don't know if we can go back to the that pink map, but um, we will have the field work done close to 50% of the city by early next year. So then um, this is um, Commissioner Larson again. So, so how long will it take you to do all the modeling? Um, right now, the, let's think um, 23, 20, the whole program throughout the whole year or throughout the whole city is supposed to be done by 25. 25, okay. So as we get this modeling data in and, and we evaluate the costs and, and the scoring and, and whatnot, how do we work to keep the modeling relevant as time goes on? Because obviously we won't be able to do all these projects, you know, at one time or even, you know, within a span of a few years. So and I'm just thinking back to the 1996 stormwater study that we did and the list that came up at that time, um, you know, within a within not too many years down the road, that list itself had already been outdated. So, what what do we have? What will we have in place to kind of guard against that to make sure that these models stay relevant? Um, Nick Hoyt, engineering program manager. Um, precisely, that hasn't been figured out. If that would be done in house or. Um, if we would contract that out, let's say every five years or 10 years or whatever. Um, I would say that um, we're currently building a, a model of the sanitary sewer system um, with a different contract, but with the same modeling software. So I think that's gonna give us a heads up to keep both models up to date. Um, um, if, if we did that in-house or externally where we could at least use it, you know, we only have to train our staff on one modeling software um but that's gonna have to be a decision made down the line once once both models are built um and it's not it can't we can't really make that decision now because we don't know what capabilities we have in-house but i can tell you it's a tremendous effort um to update those models i don't know um andy would you care to mention just how other cities keep their system their modeling up to date or could, you want to yeah. talk about that a second yeah, Andy Sowers, Burns and McDonald. Um, one of the things I did want to stress or add on to what Nick was saying, one of the advantages we have now compared to back in 1996 is the models are geospatially referenced, right? So the data that, that Trek is collecting directly goes into the model. So now we have a complete picture. It's a one-to-one -one comparison, which is a huge advantage from 10 or 15 years ago. So that makes updating the models a lot easier. Um, as Nick said, what other cities do, it does range, but the, the first thing is you do want to have somewhat of a standard modeling platform. So PCT Swim is one that a lot of folks use. It's a, it's a good, very good modeling software. So once you start to do that, then keeping either internal staff updated on, you know, training and being able to do it, or some cities do on an annual basis or a quarterly basis, will contract out and have a consultant update the model and keep it relevant. So there, there's different ways to do it, but I do wanna stress the advantage we have here is it's that one-to-one. -one. So what we've identified in the field is what's in the model. <laughs> so that isn't always the case in a lot of places, so. Yeah. Thank you, Andy, appreciate that. Um, yeah, that's all the questions I had. I just, I did wanna say though that that this is really impressive work that I'm seeing here. It's great to see it kind of come together after a um, few years of, of getting it going. Um, I think 
it, it, it's looking great. And I'm looking forward to kind of see how it continues on. And, and I will say this, um, Andy, that, um, you know, I've set through a lot of uh, explanations of modeling, you know, with, with uh, hydrology and, and uh, your explanation of this at the high level you did was one, probably one of the best I've heard. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Anything else? Thank you. Very good. Thank you again, Andy and Nick and Matt. Um, thank you so much. Fantastic. All right, let's move on to commission items. Are there any items commissioners would like to discuss? This is Commissioner Sellers. Um, I do want to bring to the commission um, for consideration and uh, a motion to reconsider uh, regarding the um, referee zone uh, that we heard last week, specifically um, the Z2200216, um, which was the um, 1100 Castle Drive application. And I think after a lot of thought, um, I realized that in regards to this particular point, um, there were some aspects of the of the rezoning application that I, I believe I didn't do my due diligence to fully examine, which I feel like left me with an abrupt judgment. Um, and so I, I would like to, to re have us uh, reconsider and re-examine um, that particular request for rezone. I guess the process would be a Tony, a motion on that? Yes. All right. So Mayor, um, I would um, like to move to reconsider the request to rezone. Um, number Z-22-00216, which is approximately 3.4 acres from RS7 district to RM12D district, located at 1100 Castle Drive, which was submitted by BG Consultants, Inc. on behalf of Christ Community Church. That's second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That's four. Uh, nay. Nay. That passes four to zero or four to one. Uh, staff, it will come back at a future date. Oh. Yes. Um, go ahead. Randy. Mayor, this is Randy Dark, Executive City Attorney. It'd be my suggestion that uh, kind of open the, reopen the hearing on this and then defer it to November 15th. That will give planning an opportunity to give notice to landowners within the area and, and other interested parties and hear it, hear it at that time. Thank you. So we need another motion for that. So I move that we open, I move that we open a public hearing um, in regards to the request to rezone Z-22-00216, which is approximately 0.4 acres from RS7 single dwelling residential district to RM12D multi-dwelling residential district located at 1100 Castle Drive. Uh, submitted by BG Consultants, Inc. on behalf of Christ Community Church. And defer, defer it. And defer. To November 15th. 15th. Okay. And to defer until November 15th. I'll second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes four to zero. Any other? Four to zero. I'm sorry, five to zero. <laughs> 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 sorry, any other commission items? 
Um, I just had one, uh, and it's just more of a comment per se. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that uh, even though we've changed the scope of what we do in terms of sustainability, that we still maintain a relationship with the county since they've taken on more of that burden. Uh, I just want to make sure that we're kept abreast of kind of what's going on in that regard, because I think it's really important in terms of what they're doing and the potential partners that, you know, we could that could come in play, especially with Panasonic on the horizon and the advanced energy companies that were presented to us through um, our economic presentation or work, work session uh, a couple weeks ago. I, I think it's a really good opportunities. I want to make sure that we're keeping on top of it. Thank you. Anything else? Okay, let's move on to the city manager's report. Thank you, Mayor. Um, the first item is a uh, response to a question that came up regarding Mill Street um, right away. Um, sales tax report is in there. Um, exceptionally good trajectory on sales tax. Um, future agenda items, and then uh, we were the first in Kansas to um, undergo an audit uh, by the EPA with their new rules uh, for our uh, MS4 permit. Um, so we will, we went through that process and we'll be getting results back. We're already making some improvements based on some of the interaction we had there. Happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Any questions? Vice Mayor, uh, this is a uh, public comment item. <laughs> this Mill Street confusion on the city's part, uh, we've also researched it, and I've seen the paperwork that you got there from the mayor, 1889, vacated Mill Street <clears throat> 130-some years ago. Well, uh, Mill Street has been you guys want to call it an alley or whatever the hell. That Mill Street, that's been there since the, the turn of the century, the last century I've gone back. And uh, it's, if you look on any of the old maps or anything like that, I don't care if it's from 18, uh, 1901 to 1920, Mill Street is where it is today, which you can get on there and your GPS will come up Mill Street. And I have conferred with other residents in North Lawrence of my age, and it has always been Mill Street. So somewhere along the line, the city has put that those signs up on Mill Street because there was Mill Street street signs at the end of the block. And before the levee was built, it used to go around the corner to Third Street. When the levee was built, then everything moved north, the right of way of that Mill Street. And so property lines moved, and, uh, but Mill Street, it has been there. It is there, and uh, mayor of 1899 vacating it. And your city engineer, Cronin, argued with me, argued with me on this, that the 400 block of Mill Street, the existing Mill Street, and the 300 block, three years ago, uh, that those two roads were vacated. 
were vacated and the city took the signs up at the end of the 300 block and the end of the 400 block, took the poles up and the signs up out about uh, 2019, middle of 2019. And we go, what the hell's that about? And uh, so then the city is calling us liars and I have another resident that visited with me and you, Brad, Iris Graver, and she was the one that Cronin told that they vacated that alley and even under the threat of moving the trash cans on Elm Street, which can't do because it's a one-way street and there's parking on that side. So uh, somebody's, uh, one, we don't like being called liars. Two, historically, the oldest neighborhood in the city, even before this side was founded, these streets were in Time. that area. So I know what the, what the deal's gonna be. I'm gonna be told to shove it, and the North Lawrence Improvement's gonna be told to shove it, and the residents are gonna be, because historically, 1889, they vacated Mill Street. Maybe Mill Street was in the river down there, you know, but it isn't from 1920 to present. It's Mill Street is where it is. Thank you, Ted. So, Thanks for screwing it. Any questions, commissioners? Comments, vice mayor? Nothing. Uh, don't like calls. Any questions for staff? Lot. I don't know. I don't know. Any other public comment? No, Mayor. All right. Bring it back to the commission. All right. Uh, then we can move on to the calendar. Uh, are there any calendar items to be added or questions about? Vice Mayor, you're not muted. Do you have a, something to add? Okay. All right. I guess with that, I will entertain a motion. Okay. Move to adjourn. Move to second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone.